This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hey, what's up, Nubians? Good everything. Wherever you are in the world, we are here. Uh, Dr. Carr and I were catching up. Uh, I was just telling him I had to, had to detox uh, from last night watching Serena. And I was not, you know, wrestling with it and wondering why one individual's pursuits meant so much to so many of us. And uh, let me shout out to the Nubian team. We we did a chat room. Somebody on Nubia was like, can we watch the Serena match together? So I was like, all right, so what does that require? So Reyes and Ahmad and everyone got together and we created a chat just for the, the game to watch the chat live, similar to the people chatting now, you know, with us. And it was required. So let me just tell you how the universe works and adversity. So remember I got hacked on Twitter? Yes, of course. I had on Twitter, had no access to the people. And uh, somebody was like, Ahmad was like, let's, why don't we have a character show chat? So now they're like almost 600 people every day. So I'm like prioritizing the Nubians, you know, while I'm on my three hour show, chatting with them and they're interacting. And it's such an experience. It's different than Twitter because, you know, these people are committed to a certain thing. So, so last night we did the same thing with Serena and oh my goodness, the angst, the, the, the pain, the, you know, cheering. I mean, it was just, but all of us collectively was, uh, I think it got up to, you know, it was like almost 200 people in together having, and it was a pop-up. So it wasn't like we planned it. It was like, okay, we're here. Y'all find it great. And I was in there and it was, it, it helped me get through, you know, to all of us collectively. We all collectively watched her lose last night. Serena lost. Uh, and this might be the last time we get to see her play. Yeah, I was hoping they'd get the doubles too, but you know. I actually was thinking if she had not played the doubles the night before, she might have had enough gas in the tank because she and Serena's played the night before, and that was a really tough match. Serena's doing splits and handstands and, you know, covering all of the court like she does, and I was like, okay, she got to play tomorrow, and you over 40. Anybody over 40, you know, like, come on, like, let's <laughs> Let's be absolutely. <laughs> and then, you know, she's carrying more weight than she should. You know, I was, I was going through all of this in my mind. Like, how is she going to come back tomorrow? She ain't in her 20s, but she just like get up the next day after a night of partying. A very good point. But she, she had to do that with Venus. They had to be on the court together. So, yeah. was, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine what, you know, the ins and outs of that relationship and that family. And of course, Orsine was there. Uh, well, along with everybody who wanted to be seen, being seen, seeing, and uh, think about Richard, of course, so I guess is with one of his sons and, you know, just isn't physically able to be there. And that family has carried so much because, of course, we overburden entertainers and athletes as if they, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I had it on. I was working and I see she, she had the girl down and then she came back the first set and I was like, okay. And then yeah, I turned it off because and I was monitoring it, but I didn't, you know, I try not to get pulled into that rhythm because I know what that does to me in terms of, I think what it does to all of us. But meanwhile, uh, Corey goes on. So Coco beat, uh, yeah, Coco golf beat, uh, Nasty's last night. And, <laughs> and she kind of looked like their niece. I mean, in a little bit, even physically, you think, okay, Coco, that's, that's the name, you know what I'm saying? And I was I was processing this um, as I was walking this morning because 
we we use celebrities and people like Venus and Serena like we use Jesus. No question. As a you know, as a proxy for the success that we may not experience ourselves. I, I'm just I'm just talking out loud right now because I, I was feeling this. You know, it's like the responsibility. None of us can help Serena. You know, I know we were calling on the ancestors and praying, and Orsine was sitting there like, Lord, I, I, she was, she had her eyes closed at some point, and I was feeling all of that. But I was thinking that there's an equal and opposite thing going on because the entire 20,000 arena people erupted every time Serena hit an ace or, or did something amazing. And I know that everyone in their living rooms were yelling and screaming. But that young lady, um, Tom Janovich, is a professional tennis player who was probably inspired by the adversity. And I was thinking about that as black people. Well, no question about it. So as black people who, you know, always underestimated, always, you know, not seen, blah, 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 and go, okay, I'm gonna show you, you know, wherever, wherever we are, that energy is empowering in a different kind of way where I'm thinking every time everyone was for Serena, everyone was for Serena, it did something. Maybe uh, Chrissy Everett. Well, yeah. everybody mutes her anyway so it don't really matter but yeah <laughs> hate her I mean, anyway go ahead well you know for the entire arena to erupt every time serena did something good probably was like a battery pack in the in the back of that girl who if you have any any kind of self you know in, in talent you know she's obviously gifted enough to be on the world stage that was probably motivating the way it's motivating for me every time somebody underestimates me or somebody is trying to, you know, come for me. I was like, oh, so this is interesting. <laughs> so I was just processing all of that. No, no, I think as usual, the, the, the genius just emerges. These things, these human things are consistent. Um, that one person, I mean, like you said, for us to use individuals as proxies for entire groups. And of course, it's fashionable now to, uh, to cheer for Serena and probably Ms. Orsin is is probably a little bit relieved. That's got to be quite an ordeal. And of course, she remembers, as does as do her sisters, as does her father and her family, um, the days when everybody wasn't cheering. I mean, of course, Indian Wells ain't ain't out of her mind. I don't care if she uh married the white boy and Cody or whatever them place and got me. No, no. Indian Wells, and she, I ain't never playing back there. I mean, I, and we all remember the many things, well, many of us, what Serena had to go through in Venus, the times when it was just them two in the locker room. And and so now it's all it's all, it's all funny games to cheer for her now, but she ain't forgot none of that, and neither have we. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure they put a battery in her back. But, you know, it's funny. I was uh, sitting with uh, Holly Greenman yesterday. He's working on his, he's been working on this five, uh, part documentary on the Italian-Ethiopian War, and he's been working on it for years. And he shared with us. He's in there, as he says, cooking. He's cooking his film, right? And he wants to put this piece in. In 1960, the Rome Olympics, there was an Ethiopian runner named Abebe uh, Bikila. Abebe uh, Bikila. Abebe Bikila won the marathon that year. He was the first Ethiopian wanted to win. And of course, after him, the floodgates opened. Now it's nothing for East Africans to win all of the distance. And Holly was talking and I said, oh yeah, Rome 60, man. That was, uh, you know, Rome Rudolph was there, uh, Muhammad Ali. And then we were talking and he said, and then a couple of brothers like, no, nah, Ali wasn't there. So I'm telling you, Ali, that's when he won the gold medal. Remember the one he threw in the Louisville River? He's he ain't messing around with these... 
he was Cassius Clay. He won the Olympics. And so I looked it up. And in the New York Times, they reported and they said, oh, yeah, Ali. And then they talked about uh, Bakila. Now, mind you, this, this documentary he's working on is about how Italy, because of what Menelik and them did to them in 1896 at Ottawa, they defeated the Italians. So then the Italians come back in 1934-35 and, and loose everything they have on the Ethiopians and the white boys back up. This is where Bob Marley gets the lyrics to the word uh, to the um to the song war, you know, until the philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior is permanently finally uh, abandoned and discredited everywhere is war. Selassie gives that speech trying to get these white countries to stop Italy, but Mussolini's on the march. United States ain't in it, of course. Great Britain gives him asylum, but only because they done already backdoored to starve the Ethiopians. The French ain't going to intervene. They letting Italy do what they want. And they putting the planes in, the Pope done blessed the planes. They put the mustard gas on them, all this kind of thing. Anyway, long story short, to the point as it relates to sports. Once we, once we, once we uh, verify that all these black people converge at Rome, Muhammad Ali, Wilma Rudolph, uh, Bebe Bikila, who is the person he's focusing on, at the end of the New York Times article, the writer says, Bikila won the marathon. He said, and he says, it took the Italians a million man army to subdue Ethiopia. And it took one Ethiopian soldier to conquer Rome. <laughs> he was like, he was like, that's it, that's the quote. So I know it's gonna be in the. But my point is, when it comes to a Serena, when it comes to, we're not just—it's not a sporting event for us. <laughs> Do you understand? And when it came to that white girl out there, now she would deny it. Everybody would deny it. No, this is competition. Every time they cheered, yeah, no, nah, I got to, I got to conquer this. It ain't just conquering America. It ain't got no. It's the thing that can never be spoken. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was a battery in her back. The wow. one that was over here speaking English the last 500 years. Wow. I mean, you just said in five minutes, everything, you know, I grew up, we all grew up, oh, people starving in Africa without any context to why. Do you know, eat your food because people are starving in Africa. You just, in five minutes, laid out, if I can't beat you, I'm going to be, okay. No question. Shout out to Tate Reeves in Mississippi because it's the same logic. Come on, so we're gonna talk they about in Mississippi. It, oh, oh, what they just busted? They just got up one day and said, "You know what? Let's not have no water system." Exactly. Why are they starving in Africa? Because you, as Muhammad Ali said, "You my opposer. You my opposer. I'm not going to Vietnam to shoot nobody. You my opposer." We all have faced them people. That's right. The, the, Mussolini and Tate Reeves, your cousins, blood ass cousins. Let's talk. <laughs> no, anyway, you're fascist. Well, so, these folks can say it now. They mad, but uh, fascist. <laughs> so what's what's our responsibility, Dr. Carr? So I, I, I bring this up. Um, Serena, it, it was hurt my heart. You know, I wanted her to win because Margaret Court's um, affirmative action uh, sitting on the top of the thing. There should be an asterisk next to her. She should not be the greatest to pick up a tennis racket. And she's not, you know. But, you know, Serena and Venus are there because a man named Richard had a vision in South Central, not a tennis pro, had a vision to bring his daughters out of something and give them something more to aspire to in his vision work, much like Joe Jackson had a vision for his family in Gary, Indiana. 
And I think about, you know, the abdication that many of us give over to people who have struggled to get to a place and we deny our own struggle to, to keep fighting, right? Because the war never ends. They never stop. We whip their ass. You can't relax. That's when you put your foot on the gas. And I get criticized because I'm hyper competitive. You know that, right? Um, I, I will beat a baby at anything. Not like the way uh, Sayada would beat a baby. But, you know, like if a seven-year-old plays with me on a video game, I'm going to wax their ass because I just Whoa. feel like they need to learn these lessons early. But there's also we something. We have a Nubian narrative. That's why we have this. Got to. Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> <Do> you understand? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's like inherently I know somebody was telling me I should just stop fighting. And I was like, I can't stop fighting because they're not going to stop fighting. No. You know, um, and, and when you think you won, like I think about the civil rights, you know, oh, we got all of these rights. And then here we are in 2022 with no voting rights now, no reproductive rights. No, like, so these things are not permanent. You just, that's why you got to keep your foot on again. Oh, we got a black president. Oh, we can relax now. Oh, man, we don't overcome. We don't overcome. No, you, that's when it's the fight starts. That's when it starts, when you start seeing some victories. And I, I feel like, you know, many of us have advocated our power and our fight to let other people fight, but everyone's fighting their own battles, you know? So Serena, yes, had she won last night, she would have tied Margaret Court. I mean, she would have gone to the next round and hopefully won. Had she won the US Open, tied Margaret Court, going out in a blaze of glory would have been a great made for TV. Maybe Mr. Karima could have done a documentary on it at some point. But we all are still in a situation where we're fighting. And last week I talked to Stephen A. Smith. Um, he's got a book coming out and he admitted on the, you know, he said, you know, I didn't have the courage. And I thought it was really profound when he said this, you know, I watched you do all of the things and I knew I didn't have the courage to do the things that you were doing. And I said, you say that as if I wanted, like I would love to have had a five-year contract, multi-million dollars a year, not have to worry about my income, not have to, you know, but I inherently knew First of all, you still have to worry or not worry, but you still you can't trust these people, even with contracts, all contracts will be broken. But I also inherently knew that I would have to fight for every dime and dollar and thing that I no one was going to hand it to me. Right. No question. No one was going to hand it to me. So whatever they handed to you, there was more of it there, which means are you ever going to get off that treadmill to quote Ralph Ellison, an invisible man, keep that Negro girl running. In other words, do you ever get off that treadmill once you get out? Well, you know, so coming even into Sirius XM, I think I've shared this many, many times. Oh, they had no money, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a decision, but that decision, I had a conversation yesterday with an executive man. And like, I think you did pretty well for yourself, even though, you know, you didn't, you know, the salary. And I was like, yeah, but what, what you don't know is I didn't do well for myself. I did well for all of us because in that moment of decision to take no money to do a thing that I really love doing, it was in my mind to build a thing so that more people could do it. Do you know what I'm saying? So if the model works with me, the model can work with it's building systems. Does this model work for Karen Hunter? Yes. Can it work for Clay K? Yep. Can it work for Liberty Fabers? Yep. Can it work for Heather B? Yep. So now everybody's in, got their own situation. Do you know? So it's not just me with a situation. Absolutely. Everybody has a situation. Can it work in Nubia? Yep. Can it work? Yep. yep. It's what, working. We're building systems That's so right. that no one person has to be the proxy for all of us. It's a system now. That's right. it. All right. So I just had to get that off. No, no, no. Like, in that vein, because work, I mean, we talked about this in that debate, you know, in the Metanetri class, which we were talking this week as well. I mean, there's not a better class in the world 
I'm talking about at any level, graduate, professional school, professional Egyptologists, many of whom don't read the language, the class that he is mounting in the mid 20s in terms of lessons and counting now with all the materials and all the assessments is superior to anything you get at any university anywhere. Um, you know, obviously he would tell us the background, the history of one of the words, as I've talked about many times here, the word for love, one of the words for love in Egyptian hieroglyphs in Egyptian language mirror mr with an e we put the vowel in but when you see the glyph it's a picture of a backhoe because love isn't just an act of chemical reaction to somebody or physical or pheromones it is about who do you labor with who do you labor for who do you work for and so everything you're describing is labor so when when people say labor of love well that's cute and of course in english or french or spanish or german or any of the european languages you've uh, you've said something that is implied in the word itself when you go to the African languages. So when you say love, you don't have to say labor of love. Labor is implied in love. And so when, when, when we come in a system that enumerates, and Howard French actually is in town this week. Uh, this is today is the um, today is the National Book Festival down at the Washington Convention Center. It's free. Any of y'all in the DMV should go by, say hello to our brother, because uh, he's down there signing copies of his book. He'll be signing copies. Of, I don't think I'm going to be able to get down there, but if I could, I would try to sneak down there, but I probably won't be able to get away. Anyway, I still have to say that the National Book Festival, Library of Congress, shout out to our sister, the great Carla Hayden, first woman, first person of African descent, and the first professional librarian to be the Librarian of Congress in over 50 years. Wow. Um, you know, she's presiding over there, down there. So if y'all see the queen, you know, I'll give, give her some love. You know, that sister, she's in, I think she's this was a year, maybe six, five or six of a 10-year term, which can be renewed. So we want her down there till she decides she want to walk away. Started as a children's librarian, Carter G. Woodson Library in Chicago. Some of y'all know what we're talking about. Uh, Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore. Just a beautiful thing to see that sister. A daughter of Sachette, as we know. But anyway, I'm just, making, I'm just mentioning this because the reason they have it there is because it's Labor Day weekend. And of course, it's the long weekend. So I think what you opened the way for this morning is a perfect uh, point of entry as it comes to the question of labor. Because we know Labor Day, the holiday, and we've talked about that. Y'all can go and look in the archive. We had a long conversation about the history of Labor oh, Day. So the um, but the concept of Labor Day as it relates to us, we were brought here to labor and it wasn't a labor of love. We were taken from the labors of love and emptied into this godforsaken criminal enterprise to labor for others, to use our. And yet, when it looked like this country was going to split apart again in 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. We shouldn't think about the Emancipation Proclamation as an act of charity. It was a war measure. And not only that, only the war power allowed him to do it. Why? Now, mind you, the Supreme Court is, is set up there, Roger Taney and them, who had the Dred Scott decision, they trying to strike down everything Lincoln did, the suspended habeas corpus, all these war measures, because they said, you don't have the power to do it. But the Emancipation Proclamation, which we must remember, was a was a presidential order, an executive order, same way Trump, same way Biden, all this. That order was really a labor measure. Think about it. All of us were here doing free labor. The minute you take that free labor from the enslavers, the owners, so to speak, that's another reason one-on-one sports are different than team sports. Teams got owners. Serena owned herself. She like an independent contract. So, you know, you know what I'm saying? She ain't playing for the Knicks. She, she, so, but 
when you mm -hmm. issue a labor order like that, what have you done? The lawyers will tell you, you have taken economic value from the owner. So there is a legal question as to whether Lincoln had the power to do that. Now, without going down that path, I'm coming to this. This is the point. Once our labor has been uh, at least ostensibly separated, the South begins to collapse. Because what happens? Now we labor for ourselves. And you know what a labor of love was? When, when 189,000 of them cats and 10,000 in the Navy, including 10,000 in the Navy, got a gun and said, let me go out here and blow some of these Confederate brains out with love. <laughs> That's a labor of love. You're going to free yourself now. Because this cat trying to keep his country together, like Joe Biden in Philadelphia last week, wants to talk about a union and preserving the union and making a more perfect union. We don't give a damn about that. We have never labored here with love. Our love is for ourselves. And so I think you open the way beautifully because when we see these moments of labor, when if you're not laboring for what you love, ask yourself, what are you doing? And you can always change your circumstance. And even if you can just carve out a little place to labor for love, because love includes what do you work for? What do you live for? And so you get, you've given us an example with your life and practice because it ain't just about you. Your love is for us and you show it with your labor. Mm. On Labor Day weekend. On Labor Day, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we both put on a shirt that we didn't we didn't coordinate. No. You know, like, no. there, there there is a spiritual component to this thing called life that you know when we tap into it, you know, there is a oneness. And you know, as individuals, everybody wants to be. You know, I I'm on myself. I'm free. I'm free. But the freedom collectively when that's the goal, then your individual freedom has so much more meaning. And um, so I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I'm loving what's happening in Nubia. A lot of people last night were like, oh, this space is so, you know, I'm so, but it doesn't exist without everybody making a conscious decision to be here. So it's like, yeah, I could want to do all of the things, but people have to also want to do it collectively in order for it to, and, and then all the people bringing their different things to round it out and make it special for everyone that's there. And um, so it's just really, it's, uh, I just, I'm grateful and I thank you. Uh, none of, none of this, as Venus last night was being um, celebrated by her baby sister who said, I, I would not be here if not for her. No sat there regally in the stands next to her mother and I think that her nephew. Um, I was thinking this space wouldn't exist without you because the inspiration came from our conversations. And I was like, okay, this pivot makes more sense than what I was gonna do. And now it's even, it's, but in just you talking to Mr. Garigma about that, added something to, you know, like we have to bring, oh yes. have to bring the ingredients so that the thing could be delicious for everybody. Like everyone spectating last night, which we were doing, you know, hoping and praying and wishing, you know, we could not put that ball in the place. We could not do, we didn't have, you know, any, real outside of our energy but serena worked to get there because somebody had a vision for her and right. what are we working to get to that's right that yeah. everyone can participate in like we were last night that's right, I just, that's right. So. Sure. So somebody who sacrificed you know richard williams orsine williams human beings we know too much about both of their lives and their family lives they don't know nothing about our lives just like Joe and Catherine Jackson and Catherine Jackson is still here, just like Orsine Williams, Richard Williams. We don't, you know, we know too much about their lives because this is a society that commodifies everything, including people's lives. And so, you know, people sit in judgment 
on celebrities and it's like really okay so let's pause here Every, let's say assume everything you said is is correct and your criticism is 100 correct what are you doing i'm just reversing the telescope now they're looking at you now we're looking at you uh open it up let's talk no i'm not a, i'm not a public figure okay this is the problem <laughs> this is the kind of kikango concept of imbangi what you think belongs to you what you say belongs to us and so yeah people put themselves out there and then you can have a choice if you're going to be out there and people begin to see you are you representative I mean, there are a lot of things we didn't see. Millions of people who watched Serena, who will watch Corey Golf, you know, and I like saying Corey because that's what a mama named her. You know what I'm saying? It's a governess nanny. Yeah, Coco is a name, sure. But then you got random people in the social structure, Coco, Coco, and she going to put up with it. But I wonder how many times, just like Roberto Clemente wouldn't let them call him Bobby in Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to give me, you no. Know, even if it's the name my mama called me, it's not going to be the name you call me till I give you permission. But at any rate, everybody's watching the matches. But I was talking yesterday with uh, my friend Nick Askew, who is the swimming and tennis coach at Howard. And he took his young people and some of the young people there yesterday, we were talking. Those young people went up earlier in the week for the annual Arthur Ashe Kids Day. So they were there with the young people, right? But how many people watching Serena don't talk? Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I've never, you know. <laughs> And it was, it was one of the best things to cover because, you know, it's empty. You don't have the crowds and all of the hoopla. And it's just young people playing. Like young people, young people, you know. Uh, it's just really beautiful. So he, he went, he took his, his uh, he students. He come up there to work. Again, this is the labor of love. They were with those young people helping them. <laughs> and you've covered that, huh? What's the energy like there? It's got, I, it ain't the same. <laughs> no, it's not the same. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. Open, even... 20 years ago with mm. Hollywood, you know, Hollywood and mm. you know, just opulence and wealth, you know, you can feel it. It's a certain class of people, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but that, yeah, those that week is is about the kids. It's about the kids, you know. So it's it's a, a totally different energy. I'm I'm really happy that he did that. Um oh, yeah. that there. that's that's beautiful. And those those kids really appreciate it. And Venus and Serena actually spent a lot of time in those spaces in Harlem. In Harlem, you know, making sure that you know, there's no coincidence that Coco and you know, excuse me, Corey. And no, no, say Coco. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Our, he's our, right? We could call yeah, him. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and people don't know. Some people, oh, her name's Corey. Yeah, name Corey and Coco. It's both. <laughs> you know, but but they were very intentional about making sure that they were seen in places. You know, making sure and, and having and you know that it still resonates because. The, the the little little Olympia. First of all, uh, Mama Orsine had to gather her up, and uh, this, 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 <laughs> they black. Um, but she had a little baby with the beads. She had a little baby with the beads in her hair because that was something they were excoriated for. That was something they were vilified. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. So you know, yeah, all of that. that all and of you, that. it's funny you said that because by some of these very same people was cheering and commenting last night. Every time them, them children came out there with them beads. No question about it. Are they gonna sleep? We on the floor? They were like, okay. Yeah, they were. And, and, and all those children, and, and as you talk, it's making me think, not just Nick Askew and the, and the women and men of the Howard tennis team, a lot of HBCUs have tennis teams. And see, I don't know enough about that rhythm to think, well, did Virginia State go? Did Morgan send their team? Did Cheney? It would be a beautiful thing, all those HBCUs, because for those young people, they may see. Venus and Serena, they probably will, even maybe even more now, you know, than, than before. They certainly saw Althea Gibson in the streets of Harlem. 
but she would play out there just like Willie Mays go out there and play stickball on 125th Street. I mean, or not 125th, up there by the Y on 135th Street. Um, just like they might see Lucy Diggs slow. In other words, yeah, this this lady court, yeah, you may have won 24 in the white world, but you don't know nothing about that, Althea Gibson. You don't know about the Negro tennis champions because the first black women to win tennis championships in this country were in the black leagues. Lucy Diggs slow, who was the dean of women at Howard. Before that, she was a national tennis player. We talked about that when we talked about of course, um, 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 oh my goodness, uh, Dorothy Porter Wesley from Jersey. I mean, who played because Lucy Diggs Slow was an idol. But those children, those teenagers, those younger people who are there for their Arthur Ashe Day, the person that will make the most direct impression on them will be those black kids, those black women and men who play tennis. And then they may say, you know what? I never ended up playing tennis but I ended up going to Grambling because when I was seven years old, I went to this thing. And I mean, and so you have to understand. <laughs> Think about this though. Uh, with the last 25 years, the greatest tennis player woman in the yeah. world was a black woman. No so question. there are two generations of children in this, in the world who only know greatness in tennis in the body of a black person. And even if we could fast, even if we're talking about Naomi Osaka, who is the, oh, well, sure. the most like, who was inspired by, like, that's all they know. That's so you can't even think about tennis greatness without Serena and Venus. No question. And now, you know, Naomi Osaka and, and Corey Gall, you know, no. it's, it's- Or even, even perseverance. I mean, victory is important, but of course for our generation, among other, among very few others, Zena Garrison out of Houston, even though she never held up the big trophy at well, it didn't matter when we saw her with or in golf. People talk about Tiger Woods, and one thing I will always be uh, happy that uh, young Eldrick, young Eldrick Woods did when he won the Masters and they put that microphone in his face. He called the genealogy. He he pulled a governess move. He called Charlie Sifford. He called Lee Elder. He called, I said, "Oh, look at that!" Now he ain't done that in a long time, but in that moment, there <laughs> for Serena this week. She she said he made her. He inspired her. To come out this last time and do this so like he was he was there he was there and what i was saying was not the genealogy as much as <laughs> i'm saying something but like greatness is in the form of black this black for, young, for all people of all walks of life the greatest in tennis is in a black body that's right. For generations, and I was watching the stands. It was a little white boy, the parent, you know, all white people. Yeah, you know. It was, <laughs> and I was like, you know, this little white boy is there cheering on this black body, this mm. black woman, this powerful black woman. I wonder what that's doing to his psyche, and and how transformative is that? You know, because everyone in that in that arena, with their children, even at home, are processing this. And you know, there's some people big mad, you know, that which is why they were big mad about Obama, because the little kids growing up wanting to be like him. No like, question. you know, wanting to be like the first lady. You got little white kids all over the, the country wanting to be them. That's my idol. That's fascinating to me. But you know. No, no, no. I, I think you know, we have to think about that because you know, at the end of the day, you can be, you can be uh someone who people love and cheer and of course for us you're absolutely right it's one thing to be competing it's one thing to have the occasional victory it's one thing to be in the room but to be the definition as you say that completely for us transformed now for others 
in a race-based society, there has never been a shortage of appreciation of black talent. The question is, does that translate into structural change? Because of course we all are familiar and know, you know, when you turn on the television a generation ago and you see the commercial and someone, you know, starts singing, uh, sometimes I dream that he is me. <laughs> you got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. <laughs> if I could be like Mike, yeah, you want to groove and move like Mike, but you ain't never given up control of Nike. Because so it's never been a problem. Do you, do you think there's a because I think tennis and golf, which is why Tiger was problematic with the cabinet Asian thing, because he had an opportunity. Um tennis and golf. He tried to, golf, <laughs> he to heal the world. His dad says he's gonna heal the world. <laughs> but you know, tennis and golf were their sports. Were their sports, were their sports. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So bad then it was basketball, football, you know, yeah. and track and field. And, and baseball was their sport. Baseball. Well, I mean, years ago, our, our parents or grandparents' generation. But yeah, those two, absolutely. And I think Francis Chris Welsing, for all the people who can't spell psychology and really have had no training and uh, critique Francis Chris Welling's uh, metaphor of the balls, uh, you know, if you're going to critique her metaphor of the balls, you should probably spend at least one class in psychology. Uh, if you're going to critique her, then please don't bring up Freud and Jung. Don't start talking like you went to school because what she says is, you know, she talks about the big brown balls and the little white balls. And she said the big, the big brown ball games, the force based games, the violence based games, the games where you got to show this athletic prowess in a way that is so obvious that it almost comes like viscerally coming out of enslavement. Yeah, those are the ones where the blacks, like football, basketball, but them little white ball games, baseball, golf, tennis, them little white ball games where they put metaphors like skill. And intellect, and because again, that critique of the Williams sisters is just natural talent. Fool! Every time I I see a tennis match, and see I've only seen a couple in person, and only seen one golf match in person, and I think to myself, how in the hell are they doing that? Because when I mean, it's one it's one thing for us to watch it and it look easy. Then you go out there and look at it, be like, that look, that ball is like this, and it's coming a hundred miles. I, I I wouldn't. I'd just be like. I don't even know what is that like to be in person and see something that it must be like an optical illusion. It's amazing. That's what my favorite. Um, I hate to cover in golf because it's just all of the. Uh, <laughs> but, but when you cover the U.S. Open, first of all, you get the best seats because you know. Mm, they, of course. They do all of the stats for you, so you ain't really need that. You just go sit there and enjoy the the drama that's unfolding. But it is magical in in that, especially U.S. Open arena, especially the big, you know, those big stadiums to and to have a great seat you know and the in the it is these these they're like nephilim you know it, and they're big you know like you think serena's five ten venus six something one you know i think the young lady last night she looked like a six footer like you know these are physical specimens and 127 mile an hour serve mm -mm. That? Mm -mm. come on and now there are no physical judges, right? So we don't have to worry about Serena. Uh, I'll stuff this tennis ball down your throat. There are moments <laughs> in the career of Serena Williams when we were all with her at that. I will stuff this tennis ball down your throat. <laughs> it, but anyway, but but it was all electronic judges, right? So to serve at that, at that speed and have a little-ass tennis ball come with a fraction of an inch on this side of the white line to score an ace, that is not just physical. It's not hand-eye coordination alone, as we know. 
this is that, this is this. Yeah. This is practice and repetition because you meant to do that. I think that's got to be, I don't know, I mean, not having, I played baseball, but not at any level where it would be, you know, able to, to say anything other than what I'm about to say. I can't imagine that a Dwight Gooden or a Bob Gibson or any of the great pitchers, I can't imagine that throwing a curveball or a slider to paint a corner and hit a catcher's mitt. Would it, I can't imagine that that would be any harder than having your hand around a, a basically a club with a net on the end and hitting a ball and putting it an inch, a quarter inch to the right of a line at 127 miles. I mean, I can't even, I think it would be easier to throw a slider and hit a court because that's in your, at least that's coming out of your hand. You got a stick in your hand with a net on the end trying to hit a ball and it's got a curve and then boom, so that the other person don't even move. Like, oh shit, you got me. <laughs> Another professional, as you say, because that girl was like you said, at any given moment, anybody can beat anybody. The rankings go out the window if you get the momentum right. And you're right, that energy last night, oh, you gotta know it, fueled her. But again, if it's not controlled by this, you just out there. I mean, so every time I hear John McEnroe say something before I mute him, and we was laughing because Coach Askey was like, Oh, oh yeah, when I watch, I watch with the volume off. I said, Well, then. If the tennis coach watches with the volume off, I know I ain't mad. <laughs> you know? But I mean, McEnroe get mad and they, they oh, you white boy, you cool. Bad boy. Serena said, I stuffed this tennis ball. You throw, they trying, they looking for the police. <laughs> so we got to arrest her. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, no, I, I, the question of what we do with that, I think we draw inspiration from it. We understand that both those sisters, and I'll never forget when Venus stood up at Howard and got a, she got a citation one graduation. And she said, I've had a lot of relatives who came through Howard, a lot of friends who graduated here. She said, I would have been here, but I had to work. And everybody started laughing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And she said, but I want y'all to understand something. Y'all are my inspiration. Y'all saying I'm your inspiration. Y'all are my inspiration. Because if I hadn't been a professional athlete, I'd have been at school. And she said, I'm in school now. Because remember, they went to school to do fashion. Their, their lives aren't just beginning, but they got all kind of stages after this because they're going to parlay that individual success and they've already begun to do it into collective success. Just this is like you talk about the collective. I mean, how many people now going to eat because Venus and Serena have caught, not just for the athletes, this is not for Coco, not Sloan Stevens, not Madison Keys, some of the ones, but the people who have gone into sports journalism to follow a Karen Hunter. The people who now went to law school to be agents because they're more black folk, which means they're going to want some black, some of them going to want black agents. And maybe some of these white tennis players, maybe that will be the difference. That little boy grew up and say, I'm going to get an agent that looked like Karen Hunter because, you know, I'm not tripping over the color of my agent. I want the right person. I mean, now that becomes incremental change. But is the structure going to change? No, because those rooms that you went into because you had a pen and you're communicating for the rest of us. I laugh when every time I think about Bill Roden when he said talks about going to them rooms where he was the only one, and that's how you see where the where the stuff is, the the spread and the cow. Like what the hell? That's the only time I've been on a tennis course, the uh, golf course, the Memorial. I was a second year law student. I was clerking at a law firm in Columbus, and they go to to the golf course. They had tickets to the Memorial. Jack Nicholas, that racist. They said, "Great, yeah, come. All right, I'm coming." I came out there in addition to you know, just looking around. All the black people I saw were serving sandwiches, grounds crew, 
And I'm over there under the tent talking to these cat service sandwiches. And I look around and these partners and everybody else, they looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm looking at them like, what are you doing? I said, these my people over here. My mom did this kind of work. I went on play, I went on, on, on jobs with her. Oh, so I'm good. And then when I left, I looked at my shoes and they had white tennis shoes on and they were green on I said, what did they spray paint this grass? I ain't never been in grass so green to come off on your tennis shoes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I said, this is another place, and it's made possible by our labor. Okay. Our labor made this possible. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you, um, because I, I, again, as I was walking this morning, I was thinking about you know individual pursuits, yes, but how collectively we can empower ourselves because a lot of times, you know, I feel like, again, we advocate our power for somebody to do it. Somebody's going to do X, Y, and Z. Yes. yes. I think about um, the hundreds of people, hundred to maybe 150,000 people this morning that still didn't have water in Jackson, Mississippi, 78% of whom are, white, are black people. Um, it's a black town with a black mayor. Yes. Uh, and, and I was somebody on my, uh, in the chat in the Nubia chat yesterday, it was like, I'm in line right now to get water in the chat and, uh, in Nubia, I'm in line in Jackson to get water. And I'm like, to get water, to brush your teeth, to wash your body, to cook your food, water you think is essential. I'm drinking water right now. It's the first thing I do is drink two cups of water before I even start my day to get my system going. And it is, you know, life sustaining. And people don't have it because of a failure in a system that constantly does this. Whether we're talking about Flint, Detroit, wherever we are, this keeps happening. It's not a coincidence. But what's our responsibility to make sure that we shore some things up? And how do we how do we navigate this? Because I feel like we'll be back here. We'll forget, you know, like we forgot Brittany Griner's still in jail in Russia. Like we'll forget, you know, because it's not, you know, it's not a forefront of our minds. We got that the pipes are frozen, busted in Jackson just before this, in the car. Yes, yes. So yeah, what, what, the same So it's like, all right, it's a national story, and then it's not. But the people there, should they leave? Like, I don't. I, like, no. I want us to 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 take hold of this wherever we are, and not advocate it our responsibility over. Oh, we we elected these people. They're supposed to do that. Okay, we elected these people. They're supposed to do that. I was just saying, you know, the, the, the craziness of America is every two, four, six years, we we recycle leadership and it's human nature to say, oh, the last person did this, I'm gonna like not do anything that they did because I need to make my way and not build on something. So it's never a baton handing over to build for the people. Like our system's not designed that way. It's designed, scorched Eric, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna do what I, oh, the last person, he was horrible, she was horrible. I'm going to do this. And then you're in for four to six years or two years. And then there's new people in and they, it, it's, it's ridiculous. I think our system doesn't work. So how do we, well, it, this system doesn't work. I mean, it's ours by virtue of the fact that we live under it, but, and we can make changes, but uh, like you say, they're not leaders. They are politicians. They're bureaucrats. And as you say, I mean, the lines blur between, um, bureaucracy and celebrity so you know and I, I imagine that it wouldn't be too difficult i would love to hear a conversation another conversation between you and our brother chokwe antar lumumba who is the mayor of jackson 
Uh, he has been everywhere in the last few days. I've seen him, you know, I don't watch white stream media much, but I saw him talking to Joy Reid on MSNBC, on CNN. Uh, I actually talked with him briefly. He was uh, with part of the panel with Reese and, and Erica on um, on Thursday night with Roland on Roland show because he and Roland had a conversation for about half an hour, a little bit longer. And of course, he has been saying everywhere what we all know that the situation in Jackson as the situation in Flint, uh, but the situation in Jackson is really a result of the state of Mississippi being very deliberate in trying to undermine Jackson. And now I'm going to switch from his language to mine because one thing, you know, I love about, uh, you know, everybody would call him Antar before his father made transition. Now, of course, Chokwe, his father was Chokwe, Chokwe Lumumba, the, the mayor before. One of the things I love about him and it, it is, you know, watching him since he has been mayor, ever since he ran first time, his father made transition prematurely, unexpectedly is watching how he has grown in that office and managed, tried to manage anyway, the expectations of black people. And that includes some very important, I would encourage everyone in fact, to get this book called Jackson Rising, the struggle for economic democracy and black self-determination in Jackson, Mississippi, Cooperation Jackson, um, Kali Okuno and Ajamu uh, Nanguaya, because that, that takes us back to the roots of why Chokwe Lumumba and Rukia Lumumba, his sister, are in Jackson in the first place. Their mother Nubia, their father, their mother Nubia Lumumba, their father, uh, Chokwe Lumumba, the attorney. Wait, their mother's name is Nubia? Yes, yes, he's an ancestor. Well, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Chokwe and Chokwe and Rukia's mother's name Nubia. That's right. Beautiful sister, wonderful sister. It was a flight attendant part of her life at work. Um, just a beautiful spirit, beautiful inside and out. And um, but the reason they're there was revolutionary. They moved to Jackson because Jackson was the point of a struggle in the 1960s. Well, the struggle going back to the 1860s, struggle going back since they've been black people. You know the history of Jackson, you know the history of Mississippi, you know that black folk, um, and I won't get into this now. I mean, I would encourage you all, there are a number of places. Oh, man, I was just, because we're going to talk about this next week at the law school. We're actually reading Catherine Frankie's book, Repair, again. I always have them read that in my class over there because it's about reparations. And the, the case for reparations and one of the areas she focuses on is on uh, Davis Bend, Mississippi, which was the plantation hurricane. Can you believe that? Of course you can, because, again, we're coming to global warming in about two minutes. Uh, that plantation was owned by the Davis family, including Jefferson Davis. Yeah, Jefferson Davis, the president, president of the Confederacy and a senator from Mississippi. But those Africans, once the Union Army came in and asked them to continue to labor, they took that plantation and turned a profit and they used the money to help fund the war effort. And then of course, after the war, they turned the property back over Andrew Johnson, that punk fascist president of the United States after Lincoln got his brains blown out. Johnson comes in and they forgive the Confederates and they allow them to take the land back. And so they sell that land out for money them because uh, Isaiah Montgomery's father, was the head guy enslaved African running the place for Jefferson Davis's brother. And they end up, he ends up entering a contract to buy the property from Davis. Davis makes transition after they get a land back. His family is like, we don't give a damn about any deal you had. Plus you just been servicing the debt payment, whatever. So anyway, they take the land out. 
Davis's son, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Montgomery's son, Isaiah, ends up uh, being one of the founders of Mount Bayou. And of course, we know Mount Bayou is where we talked about that, Dr. Howard and the people. That's where Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, spent the night in the trial. Black self-determination runs deep in Mississippi, even with contradictions, because Montgomery is elected a delegate to the Mississippi Convention when they write the Jim Crow Constitution. And he basically says, you know, Negroes don't get involved in politics. So, so he's there in the room and kind of votes on the side of Jim Crow. But part of it is black self-determination is real complicated. Rolling is hell on Isaiah Montgomery. And I'm like, dude, it's complicated. And I understand because I'd probably be hell on, on, been hell on him too. But circumstances, these are the circumstances. Booker Washington will go to Mount Bayou. Just kind of, but it comes out of hurricane, comes out that plantation. So I'm saying self-determination Mississippi goes all the way back. And I'm not going to get into a long history of that because we've talked about this. If you want to read about it, you can read the work of um, Chokwe Lumumba, the father, uh, Free the Land, my dear sister and friend, and Kichi Taifa, the lawyer has written her uh, autobiography, Black Power, Black Lawyer. Uh, of course, the great Imari Abubakari Obadeli, America, the nation state. Uh, there's a young academic who's very close to a lot of these folks who's written a good book called Free the Land about the Republic of New Africa. Some of those Republic of New Africa people still around. You know, freedom fighters, shout out in Miami to my man, uh, General Rashid and all of them who was there present when the police tried to take them out at Aretha Franklin Daddy Church in Detroit. I mean, there's a history to all of that. And I'm very proud to be in a generation that is not only aware of that, but deeply connected to that. So when I see Antar, when I see Chokwe Lumumba, when I see Mayor Lumumba, I'm not just looking at a mayor, I'm looking at my brother. You understand? I understand how difficult it is to manage the expectations of black Mississippians. Ain't nobody no punk in Mississippi. Okay. You know, my friend, Afia Zakia, who, by the way, has now been formally announced as the executive director of the Africatown Foundation in Mobile. So I can't wait for us to do some stuff with her. They got they got a Mississippian down there in Alabama who's going to join with those Alabamans, those Africans. And it's just it's, it's a beautiful day. I'm so glad to see this. But at any rate. Self-determination there runs deep. It runs from the uh, the indigenous people who were invaded by them Europeans, the French and the Spanish came in there first. It runs for the Africans who've been enslaved in the Mississippi Valley now for centuries and coming out of formal enslavement, fought their way in establishing, you know, hey, shout out to everybody at those Alcorn Braves, Alcorn, Mississippi Valley, Jackson State University, where we saw Coach Prime tell his, tell his players, don't be going to class with no slides on. I don't want to see no armpits. I don't want to see no, what they call wife beaters, spouse beaters. I don't want to see you come in class, you sit up front because if we need help from that teacher at some point, they need to know your character. Don't be in the back making noise. All right, Prime, I see you, Coach. I ain't mad at you. You know, so, but, my, but what I'm saying is that those institutions come out of a desire for Black people to improve themselves, Tougaloo. Come on now, let's talk about Tougaloo right there in Jackson, Mississippi. All those places, you know, where students would come from all over Mississippi. Shout out, of course, to my dear friends, Dory Ladner, her sister Joyce out of Hattiesburg. It's very serious. And so are the fascists. You mop top clown, the governor of Mississippi, who's really a bureaucrat, making sure that his friends, along with his own fascists, members of the Mississippi State Legislature, his, his friends, to make sure that their friends, like Brett Favre, get money that was targeted for children and those without, so they can add to the millions they made throwing a, a big brown ball to black receivers up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. But, you know, make sure that that Mississippian gets hit off a little bit. So, yeah, he'll give two or three dollars and go out and watch practice at Jackson State and they get a new facility. I understand Coach Prime trying to do what he got to do, but understand, brother, this is politics and these white boys stick together. And he understands that well. 
But I'm saying that Mississippi has always been a, a, a microcosm of this global way in this settler state that doesn't have a soul. Sorry, Joe, I'm coming to you in a minute because he gave a soul to the nation speech in Philadelphia. And I've been on them steps many times, been down there. And I, I can understand why you might even pick Philadelphia because that's where back in 2008, I was standing outside the Constitution Center uh, right across the street from Independence Hall in March 2008 when Barack Obama with an audience full of white school children that I watched them pull the school buses up and put them up in there, gave his famous uh, perfect union speech where he threw our dear brother and elder Jeremiah Wright under the bus. And then for a chaser, threw his own grandmother, white grandmother under the bus too, but it was Jeremiah Wright. I was there. Wow, really? This is what you going to do? I see you. I see you, Barry. That's what they called you right back in the day. But anyway, the point is that I understand why Joe Biden would be there talking about the soul of a nation, but guess what? Settler state countries don't have a soul. And if you want to understand why I say that, go to Mississippi. Alabama got me so upset. Tennessee has made me lose my rest, but everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. <laughs> but not because it's an outlier, because it is the soul. If you want to talk about soul, it's the soul of white supremacy. It's the soul of fascism. That's the reason I call that mop top terrible toupee governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, a cousin of Benito Mussolini in Italy. As Mussolini toward the Ethiopians, so Tate, so Tate Reeves toward the Africans of Mississippi. That ain't true. If it's not true, why have you starved Jackson? Following in a long line of Mississippi governors and white state legislatures that have done that. Why have you been in an intense battle trying to take that airport? That black people ain't put out there. Remember the airport, and Choker was talking about this the other night, you know, and he's been talking about it consistently. There's been a fight for a long time. They went to court 2015, 2016 to get the Jackson Airport away from the city of Jackson. Now, Benny Thompson has said, you know, we gotta, you know, we gotta stand for them. I'm, I'm not gonna stand for that. I'm gonna fight, fight it. But see, it's a state issue, and they wanna starve Jackson because Jackson is overwhelmingly black. So what do these white boys do? They did what they always do everywhere else when they when they suffer a temporary setback. And by temporary setback, I mean when these cities became black after the Civil War and got increasingly black. Jackson, Mississippi, Tallahassee, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia. When people start flooding in, these Africans start flooding in and it gets blacker and blacker. And then after apartheid, after we smash apartheid, we're going to talk about that too in a minute. What they do? Well, hell, we ain't going to live with y'all. Y'all damn sure ain't going to get none of our tax money. We're going to take yours, though. We could keep segregation going. Oh, damn, you won that case in the court? Okay, let me move. Okay, is this the city limits? Okay, what are you doing? I'm just going one foot over the city limit. Now I got my tax money. I'm going to have good water out here. I'm going to do it. And I took that revenue from you. Now I'm going to come in to work, but I'm going to go back out here to live. So as I starve you of resources, we'll gerrymander a little bit and we're going to turn your ass into a Bantu stand, into a, into a colony. But black folk had different ideas. So Chokwe's mother and father, Rakia's mother and father, their comrades before them, like Amari Obadelli and them, they said the South is where black people are. We lost, in fact, uh, or she transcended at 105 years old, Professor Hunter. A, uh, a resident of the People's Republic of Brooklyn, our sister Esther Cooper Jackson made transition. Even when we were talking last week, if I had known, I would have, you know, would have talked about it. Uh, she was one of the founders of the Southern Negro Youth Conference, the first SNCC. 
And of course, she and her husband, James, between them, several degrees uh, from HBCU. She did her master's on, on black women domestics and organizing and labor at Fisk University. Um, I, I mentioned that because, of course, we know the Social Security Act excluded domestics. Who are they after? Black women. That's them Southern senators, including the Mississippi punks. Punks. You're an ancestor, all right? I'm sure you're getting your ass whipped in the ancestral realm, even if you are allowed to even have the privilege of dealing with non-white people in the ancestral realm. But, or you might actually be gone because people don't speak your name. That's a whole nother thing. But my point is that Esther Jackson wrote about that. Her husband, James Jackson, has a degree from Howard. Um, went to Virginia Union undergrad. You know, that's Jeremiah Wright territory down there. Both places, Virginia Union, then Howard, like Jeremiah Wright, James Jackson. And uh, communists, harassed, persecuted, deep friends with the with the uh with the robesons um among others so esther cooper jackson made transition and i mentioned that because w.e.b du bois as i've talked about before in north carolina before a meeting of the southern negro youth conference i think it was benedict college where he gave his famous speech and i've showed you all this speech we talked about it you can go back and look in the archive uh behold the land where dr du bois says the future of the american negro is in the south that's where our people are our people will always be there. And even after the migrations, now there's a re-migration to the South. You see black people in the South. Well, Mississippi is no different. And when Africans in the 1960s, in the wake of the of Malcolm X being influenced by Malcolm X, the Henry brothers, Richard and Milton Henry, as we talked about many times before, Imari and Gaidi Obadeli, you know, I said, you know, let's go to the South, self-determination. We want five states. That's them five states. Remember, we talked about that with Misha Green and Lovecraft country. She's getting a little too close to reality when she's putting out how the country fractures and them states in, are black that you see in this color. Yeah, that's that map, virtually the same map that the Republic of New Africa had. And they went to Jackson, they call it the Cush District. I'm not gonna get into the history because again, we can go back, you can go back into narrative in Nubia or you can read any of the things that I've uh, mentioned a moment ago. I'm, you know, I don't wanna, I wanna conserve this time for things we haven't talked about yet. Again, if you're not in Nubia, if you're not in narrative, you miss an opportunity because after 100, in 130 and counting of these weekends and then everything else all the classes all the conversations and everything new things coming up every week like this viewing platform to be able to have that conversation that is this that's really where the work is again but i mean this this is the work too but i'm just saying now so you can go back and, and look at all this so let me cut this short long story short ongoing story short ongoing story short this ain't just history see people want to study history nah this is a living tradition, to quote Hampate Ba. Those Africans went down there, and when the police tried to come for them, because Jackson was still under control of the white people, Hines County police, the sheriff, deputy, they got in a shootout with them. They called for help to Detroit, because that's what we, the Henry brothers from Detroit. They called Detroit for help, called John Conyers, Congressman Conyers, and as I've told you all before, who picks up the phone and answers and who sends some support down there? Rosa Parks, because remember Rosa Parks and Raymond Parks had to get out of Alabama. They went to Detroit, like so many other Alabamians, and she working for John Conyers. So there's a Republic of New Africa story in the life of Rosa Parks. So those Africans in Mississippi who have never left Mississippi since getting off the boat, those who have come into Mississippi afterward, co-mingling, these are African people. And that house is still under control, by the way, of African people, the house where they had their shootout, Republic of New Africa, the Black House, the Africa House. Now, all that is a backdrop to what's going on now. This is yesterday's uh, Washington Post. Below the fold, water crisis. Water crisis in Mississippi exposes another climate vulnerability. Extreme weather could put other sewer systems, mains and wells in peril. 
could put already put the same climate change is driving the drought in everywhere from Pakistan to California to Texas. People, you know, in California saying, you know, don't turn on your sprinklers, then don't turn on the lights. I mean, the same crisis in Flint, increasingly, the same crisis in Mississippi. What's happening in Mississippi, as Brandy Dennis and Sarah Kaplan report, quoting Andrew Welton, who is an environmental engineer at Purdue University in Indiana. Shout out to my friends at Purdue. I ain't been out there since before COVID. Gotta get COVID on Purdue. <laughs> Quote, every public drinking water system in the country is vulnerable to a natural disaster, said Andrew Wilton, who has advised utilities in the U.S. Army on water safety issues. Quote, but many are not actually prepared to respond in the way they're going to need to be. Generations old sewers are routinely overwhelmed by bigger storms. Algae blooms and excess sediment may contaminate reservoirs amid high temperatures and prolonged drought. Rising sea levels can stymie septic systems and cause salt water to leach into wells. When wildfires destroy water mains and spread chemical contamination, it may take months for drinking water to be safe again. But experts say the danger is greatest in a place like Jackson. Low-income communities of color dealing with fragile, I'm sorry, let me just edit this. Low-income non-white communities dealing with fragile and, and failing water infrastructure. Then goes on to studies they've done, basically death white studies to quote Anderson Thompson. You know what it is. You're just going to make a report. But as Mayor Lumumba was saying, we're doing what we can with the resources we have, but the state is holding state resources hostage and blocking our access to federal resources. Because remember in the infrastructure plan that passed Congress, there was money that was sent to a number of uh, states in this country, including Mississippi, and the money sent to Mississippi was with Jackson in mind. But between Jackson, Mississippi, and Washington, D.C., is that Dollar General store mop-headed fascist named Tate Reeves and his old times there are not forgotten Cracker State Legislature. You mad? Get mad. Do something about it then. Do something about it. Let's talk. Millions of dollars in loans that will be forgiven and grants will be forgiven require application for that. And what Mayor Lumumba has explained to everybody who will listen, because there's been misreporting in the papers that Jackson didn't apply for this money. You need a targeted grant writer who has this proficiency to make the application, but they got the staff. Mayor Lumumba said, we got the staff to do it, but who's between them and their money? State approval. See, that's what they do when they want to hold you hostage in a city and when these damn Jim Crow apartheid-ass states in the United States South. I grew up in one. So let's talk. When they can't control you here, they go here. Desegregate? Shit, I moved to the suburbs. Okay, but now they have control down here. Okay, I moved to the suburbs, but now we're going to incorporate. Nashville? Mm, Madison. Nashville, hmm, Brentwood. Nashville, hmm, Antioch. Wait, control, okay. Nashville, Davidson County. Atlanta, Fulton County. You see, now you move to the county level because you're trying to control them. And when you can't do that, because here's the fight over the airport. I love flying into Jackson, Megawally Evers Airport. As someone who African was raised in the South, you know, and I've told people this many times, I get on a plane, at BWI 3rd Marshall, land in Jackson, Jackson, Mega Evers, and maybe with a connecting flight there to because Southwest left for a while, they back in Jackson to Louis Armstrong in New Orleans or Fred Shuttlesworth 
in Birmingham. It's a beautiful thing. It's symbolic, but it also means cultural meaning making and movement and memory. How did it do Africans remember that? Now, we need some of these airports to be named, by, named for some sisters. You know, it'd be nice to have a Katherine Johnson airport in Virginia somewhere. But, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. But my point is that it means something. I, come, I walk through Mega Everest Airport. Let me call it Jackson. F. Andrew Jackson. Forever. But the point is that I land in Everest. I used to love going there. And I, yeah, I've told them that, you know. Rakia, and I said, you know, I walk through and see you put your daddy picture up there, the mayor of Jackson. Here go to Black Jackson. And here's the thing that these white boys mad about in Mississippi. You see the airport commission. I think it's five members on the airport commission. Oh, damn, they black too. Right, because the city of Jackson owns Jackson Mega Wally Everest Airport. They big mad in the state. So they went to court because they want they want a, a three-county board and the city will appoint some people. You know, that's how they do it. They give you a few people. Then they pay off two of the Negroes that they gave you. Uh, shout out to the mayor of Richmond. Um, we, we'll get there. Maybe we talk a little bit about uh, Yunkin in, 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 in Virginia, who's only there because Terry McAuliffe conspiring with, uh, let me not do that, because uh, what's that What's that one they caught in blackface and then they uh, dredged this stuff up on Justin uh, Fairfax, who then screamed and said, I want an investigation of all these allegations of sexual assault. And, he, and to this day, nobody gave him no allegation. And all the media that tried to lynch him has now been walking it back like we should have asked. We should have asked. Yeah, now we end up stuck with this white nationalist fascist yunkin in the governor's place because Terry McAuliffe thought, you know, that he could make a play. And then you end up getting beat. Why? Because you're all trying to save Ralph Northern, the blackface, who, you know, I guess he came to black Jesus and decided he's going to take down some statues. Anyway, the point is this. You expand so you can control. If you can't do the local level, you go to the county level. If you can't do the county level, you you do some configurations, regional level. If you can't do that, you go to the state level. And that's where you get the gerrymander going. Mississippi over 40 percent black. So political power, what do we do about it? Well, one of the things we have to do is organize. That's what uh, Cooperation Jackson is about. But if you get elected power, you have to bring some of that in. That's why Baba Chokwe, who was never about elective office, he said, I'll go to city council, okay, but I'm listening to the people. This comes out of Republican New Africa. This comes out of New African People's Organization. This comes out of these Black nationalist, Pan-African organizations that are operating at the local level by saying the people must be listened to. So if we're going to have a city policy. We need to have the people, these 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 circles, these communings, these these imbongis. And you all can, you know, can read or you can go on YouTube, you can go a lot of places and hear how these people's forms, these people's forms come together and, and participate in the decision making process. That doesn't mean you can change the structure of electoral politics. Because there is no mayor. Who is a magician particularly when they're starving you. And this is the point that Mayor Lumumba has been making the last few days as Jackson is under assault. What y'all not going to do is say we did this to ourselves. Just like you said at the beginning, Professor Hunter, what you're not going to do is say we did this to ourselves. Now, so let me pause here. As we think about this early on in this conversation and kind of weave some things together. When you labor out of love, and there are some politicians who are doing this as a labor of love. I put the Lumumba family in the labor of love. You don't enter into electoral politics if you are in that family because you want to enrich yourself. You know, um, I put Deion Sanders in that labor. He don't need no money. At least he don't need that money to be a coach of the HBCU. That's labor of love. And, 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 and as complicated as he is, as we are all complicated, there are some things he has said and done. I'm like, eh, but I also see somebody who was in it for the love of our people. And so I understand 
just like those young people in the U.S. Open who go to Arthur Ashe Day and see those black uh, tennis players, these college tennis players, and then we'll see Venus or Serena or somebody else come through and be inspired by that to do something that ain't got nothing to do with tennis, perhaps. Certainly, when you think about the 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 inspiration that Deion Sanders brings to these young men and women around Jackson State, and as I said to Mayor Lamuma the other night when he was on Rolling Show, we we were all talking with him. I said, you know, we, we of course we're praying for y'all. We got to have support for y'all. We got to figure this out. We got to bang on the damn Congress. What is Benny Thompson doing? I know Joe Biden called you, but now you got to get this money directly to Jackson and somehow either bypass or run over them fascists in the state house in Jackson. You know, I said all of that. I said, and the one day I can't cheer for y'all is when we meet up uh, next weekend in Memphis for the Southern Heritage Classic. That's uh, Jackson State versus Tennessee State football. I've been playing now 30 some years. It's a beautiful thing because the young people that come to that meeting aren't just coming for the football. There's a whole thing built out on college access. You know, you got elementary school, middle school, high school students coming in. The bands come in. If you play a, a play an instrument in Memphis, you come. They're going to have workshops, all that kind of thing. So when Deion Sanders said, you know, he don't know about Jackson State continuing to play in that classic because of the money. He's right about the economics, but he's wrong in terms of the value. It ain't just a football game, bro. But I don't blame. I don't. I know you don't understand that as well as I do because I went to it. I was there. But you will come to understand it. So I'm saying even that growth is important in that process. But all of this is wrapped around a core of love. You're doing this for love because you could do something else for much great profit because they buy Negroes every day. They buy Negroes by the pound. I know a few Negroes they rent too. But I mean, but, but anyway, you could do quite well for yourself as an individual. And I'm saying all that to say that so at, on this Labor Day weekend, we understand that what is being fought over is profit from other people's labor. The sister who went Southwest closed their desk in Jackson was transferred to Florida, uh, to Miami, I think. And then when Southwest came back a couple of years ago, she was back, I think it's 2019. And she said, I'm so glad to be back because there's a culture here. There's a, and it's like, this is a beautiful thing because she, she's laboring. She's making her money. She's in the, you know, the airline industry. She's working the desk, but she's also a person of African descent in a black city, in a black airport controlled by black people and an important revenue stream when the fascists are surrounding you and they want that too. And Chokwe said the other night, uh, Mayor Lumumba said the other night, he said, you know, they, they wanted me to sell the airport. And, and it's, uh, somebody asked him, I think it may have been Reese. Yeah, it was. Reese asked him. See, I understand that something's about the airport. They're trying to get control. So them starving y'all the resource. He said, yeah, well, he said, if we were to sell the airport, we would be, uh, he said, if I, if I were to lead a, a, a move to sell that airport to them, I would be a fool and cheap. Because the number was so low, but they know. Where's your revenue stream? You, you've exploited the labor of African people since enslavement in Mississippi to enrich your, your punk selves. You can go out on that golf course. You don't mind one Tiger Woods. What you don't want is Negroes owning the golf course. And so when we think about this question uh, and then employing other black people, so, you know, rich Negro don't really mean nothing to us. Shouldn't anyway. We should not be celebrating rich Negroes being rich. What did you do out of love that helped all of us? How do we all move forward? So um, I'm saying I have to say this as I kind of tie these things together. What happens when you take control of your own labor? People get mad. They're profiting off the labor of the citizens of Mississippi, these fascists, and they want more. They want to squeeze everything out. 
They don't give a damn if your baby can't take a bath or if you can't drink the water or if your mama can't wash her feet. It don't matter. In fact, they like it. And if they ever do pinch off $2, they're going to get a contract to their friends who are lobbying the legislature. Because they don't give it. You're a slave to them. They don't give a damn. And then them same people that would have snuck down the riverboat, gone to Vicksburg, whatever, and set up in the Bobby Blue Bland concert. And yeah, I love the blues. I love the blues. You're racist. You love hearing Bobby Blue Bland, but you ain't listening to what he said. Bobby Blue Bland said, I pity the fool. I pity the fool that falls in love with you. <laughs> oh, he'll break your heart one day. And then he'll laugh and walk away. Oh, I pity the fool. That to me should be the national anthem of black people in the United States of America. Look at the people. Then bring in the brass. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I know you wonder what they're doing. They just standing there watching you make a fool of me. Oh, I pity the fool. Yeah, I pity the fool that falls in love with you, America. Joe Biden, stand in front of a building I've been in more times than I can count, having lived in Philadelphia for a number of years. And every 4th of July I was there, I would go down and watch. Reading a copy of Fred Douglas's What to the Slave is the 4th of July, where he says, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. Watching a black choir, most of those years a black mayor, watching them give the Medal of Freedom. I was there the day they opened the Constitution Center where Barack Obama gave that silly ass perfect union speech where he threw Reverend Wright under the bus. I was there standing outside looking at the place. I was there when they opened it and all the Supreme Court justices came and they tried to pull the curtain to unveil it and the wood frame they had on frame in the building started rocking and everybody's like, ooh, and I'm like, damn, they're about to kill about six Supreme Court justices. Anyway, I was there. So when Joe Biden came out, Joe and Joe Biden, Dr. Biden came out and he gave that talk the other night and he talked about the soul of a nation, I just started laughing. Settler colonies, settler states don't have souls. There's too many different people in here. What you're talking about is what Lincoln was talking about when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. What Lincoln was talking about is trying to stitch together something. That's a Frankenstein. And if freeing some of these Africans will do it, keep it together, fine. If letting them go will do it, fine. If letting some of them go, keeping some of them slaves, fine. No problem. When you sign that work order, you reconfigured the labor arrangement in this country. And when you reconfigure the labor arrangement, you're going to start messing with people's money. And these white boys don't like when they mess with your money. You understand? And so... When we think about that in this context, we have to remember, like I said, I was coming down there and read Fred Douglas's, Fred Douglas, Fred Douglas, Fred Douglas, September the 3rd, 1848, I think. No, 1838. Let me read from uh, Eric Foner's Life and Writings of Frederick Douglas, volume one, of the four volumes with the appendix, uh, the uh, fifth bi-bindings, really. On Monday, September the 3rd, what's the day, September 3rd? On Monday, September 3rd, 1838, Douglas bade farewell to Baltimore and slavery. To effect his escape, Douglas used a familiar method in southern seaport communities. He had frequented contacts with free Negro sailors in the shipyards and had found them sympathetic to the plight of the slaves. From a seafaring friend named Stanley, who was his height, he borrowed a sailor suit and a sailor's protection, a paper listing the physical features of his owner, who as a free American laborer could move about the country. 
Douglas hopped the last car while a friend, Isaac Rhodes, threw his bundle into the moving train as it left the Baltimore station for Philadelphia. Douglas escaped slavery on September 3rd, 1838. He was helped by black sailors, free black sailors, including one who gave him his papers and his uniform. Labor day, labor, collective. These collective of black men helped a black man escape slavery on the 3rd of September, 1838. In the late afternoon of September 3rd, Douglas arrived from Baltimore in, let me see, in Philadelphia. Hear that way Joe Biden made that speech the other night talking about the soul of a nation. Douglas arrived in Philadelphia where he, quote, lived more in one day than in a year of slave life. The next day he was in New York City. Brother Bebe coming into the Coliseum, highly showing us the, the footage of this Ethiopian barefoot running through these same streets with these statues from these fascists of the earlier days, the founders of Rome. And the British commentators saying that they didn't know what to make of him. Yeah, but he beat the next competitor by 35 seconds who was supposed to win the gold. But that day, it took a million man army to conquer Ethiopia. It took one man to conquer Rome, one Ethiopian soldier. It took one Frederick Douglass to smash enslavement in the face, coming back to the White House like, dude, this got to end. And so looking at Biden the other night with Jackson in mind, he didn't call Mayor Lumumba. What can we do? What can we do? Do any this money directly? That's our tax dollars. And they taking our tax dollars. This whole question of white supremacy, we have to put all this in the context of labor on Labor Day weekend. It is a battle. Now, labor here in the United States is contextualized by, of course, enslavement. This from W.E.B. Du Bois. Black Reconstruction in America, 1935. Between the end of World War I and the beginning of World War II, 1935, the same year Italy is attacking Ethiopia. Doug, uh, uh, du Bois writes this. The masters feared their former slaves' success far more than their anticipated failure. Think Mississippi pre-Civil War. They lied about the Negroes. They accused them of theft, crime, moral enormities, and laughable grotesqueries. They forestalled the danger of a united Southern labor movement by appealing to the fear and hate of white labor and offering them alliance and leisure. What them poor white people in Mississippi doing when they vote for these white boys to go in and starve Jackson, but also keep them poor, not expand Medicare or Medicaid, not, not, not get them access to things that their tiny tax dollars have already paid for, but they somehow happen around this whiteness? Joe Biden talking about the soul of America and trying to still pick off them two or three white nationalists saying it's the MAGA Republicans, not all the Republicans. Are they providing cover for the open mouth fascists? Come on, Joe. Now I seen that ghoulish Rick Scott out of Florida last week mad at the real grim gatekeeper Mitch McConnell out of Kentucky saying you're being traitorous. See, when they start talking about traitors, they talk about traitors as if you were a traitor to the Confederacy. You understand? Ain't no soul, Joe. So Scott mad because he's leading the campaign committee in the Senate and they about to get waxed. Shout out to Mandela Barnes. Come on, y'all. Let's support Gary Chambers in Louisiana. We're looking at all kind of things could be flipped. Val Demings, yeah, I don't agree with a lot of her policies, but she better than Lil Marco, that white uh, Latin punk. Scott's mad at McConnell. 
because he said McConnell ain't going hard in the paint. McConnell's like, well, you know, we might, it's, it's the quality of candidates. And then people looking at the news like it's reality instead of a, its own form of entertainment. Don't miss the fact that after McConnell said that, he went to Kentucky, had a, a, um, a fundraiser for the mentally challenged black Senate candidate in Georgia. And also the carpetbagger uh, propped up at one time by Oprah Winfrey, who will now not endorse him, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. McConnell went to Kentucky and raised money for them people. So if you're just watching the news, don't be watching that social structure stuff. So uh, Du Bois writes, they encouraged them to ridicule Negroes and beat them, kill and burn their bodies. The planners even gave the poor whites their daughters in marriage and raised a new oligarchy on the tottering, depleted foundations of the old oligarchy a mass of new rulers, the more ignorant, intolerant, and ruthless because of their inferiority complex. So a lot of, I know I ain't got no teeth and I ain't got no health care, but I'm white and I'm against CRT. CRT, what does that stand for? It stands for CRT, I'm against it. The more ignorant, intolerant, and ruthless because of their inferiority complex. You understand? And that pufferfish governor of Florida pretending like he one of y'all, DeSantis, and thus was built a solid South, impervious to reason, justice, or fact. You'd let a baby not be able to drink water rather than do what's right. What do we have to do? Stop looking to these people as if there's some common bond. I pity the fool that fall in love with you and expect you to be true. I pity the fool. Look at the people. I know you're wondering what they're doing. They're just standing there watching you make a fool of me. This Du Bois says, with this arose a solid North. Uh-oh. A North born of that North, which never meant to abolish Negro slavery because its profits were built on it, but who had been gradually made by idealists and laborers and freed slaves to refuse more land to slavery. So they didn't want slavery to expand. It may mess up their money. Because remember, if you, if you abolish enslavement in the South prior to the Civil War, if you abolish it, and these black people start moving. Now you got to compete with that black labor in the north. Some of y'all live in Cleveland. Some of y'all live in New York. Some of y'all live in Philly. Some of y'all live in Detroit. Some of y'all live in Akron. Some of y'all live in Seattle. Some of y'all live in Portland, Oregon. If you're in the United States, if you know all them cities and that, then you know what happens when black labor has to compete with white labor. Some of the most racist enclaves in this U.S. experiment have been the unions. Oh, I'm against racism and slavery as long as them negroes don't come up here now they come up here we got a problem continuing with this new north fired by a vision of concentrated economic power and profit greater than the world had envisioned tried to stop war and hasten back to industry but the blind angry bewildered south threatened to block the building of this new industrial oligarchy by political power increased by the very abolition of slavery so you free all these negroes you get more apportionment still to this day congress everything else but you don't let them vote. That's what voter suppression is about. You want to count them for the census. Forget what Trump and that uh, decrepit uh, Secretary of Commerce, whose name we won't speak, uh, is talking about. They want to count the bodies. They just don't want you to vote. Until the North had to yield to democracy and give black labor the power which, with which white Southern landholders threatened Northern industry. So a lot of this is economics being driven. This is what Du Bois is saying. You empower black people in the South because to your economic profit. Remember, the, the Grand Old Party was formed in the 1850s. The Republican Party is a party of business. It's good for business ending enslavement at some point. I'm going to go to the end. He says, in return, Northern capital bribed black and white labor in the South and white and black labor in the North. 
it thrust debt, concessions, and graft on the South, while in the North, it divided labor into exploiting and exploited groups of skilled and highly paid craftsmen who might and did become capitalists. This is the dream everybody can be rich. And the mass of ignorant, disenfranchised, imported born slaves. He's talking about them white ethnics that fought their way into whiteness. The West transformed its laboring peasant farmers into land speculators and investors and united its interests through the railways to the solid South in return for non-interference with big business. That's how the West comes in. So now you got a criminal enterprise, the soul of a nation, Joe? The soul of capitalism, we know capitalism ain't got no soul. Global capitalism has no soul. And he gonna put racism in and he gonna put all these different people in here and put them in different class positions based on their labor and the exploitation of wealth based on their labor. And he gonna talk about saving the soul? Du Bois writes, God wept. But that mattered little to an unbelieving age. What mattered most? was that the world wept and is still weeping and blind with tears and blood. For there began to rise in America in 1876 a new capitalism and a new enslavement of labor, home labor in cultured lands, appeased and misled by a ballot whose power the dictatorship of vast capital strictly curtailed, was bribed by high wage and political office to unite in exploitation of white, yellow, brown, and black labor in lesser lands and breeds without the law, especially workers of the new world, Folks who were American and for whom America was, meaning all them people who don't live in the United States who aspired to come to America because what did, uh, what did Biden say the other night? The thing that defines America's potential, potential. That's that lie you were selling when Carter Woodson was trying to teach them school children in the Philippines. Shout out to the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, Afro-American Life and History, founded September the 9th, this coming week. 1915 in Chicago, that same Chicago Carla Hayden came out of at the Carter G. Woodson Library. Woodson taught in the Philippines. Y'all putting that propaganda down out there. This is all the Caribbean. This is Latin America. This is the land of prosperity. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Get your money, get your money. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And then they lie to themselves that they're here because they love our freedom. Man, I why would you leave the tropics for New York City? Except the money worth more in remittances. You really think people came here because they love George Washington and that damn flag? I pity the fool. It falls in love with you. Goes on and says, the immense profit from the new exploitation and worldwide commerce enabled a guild of millionaires to engage the greatest engineers, the wisest men of science, as well as to pay high wage to the most intelligent labor, and at the same time to have enough surplus left to make more thorough the dictatorship of capital over the state and over the popular vote. Not only in Europe and America, but in Asia and Africa. Last paragraph, Du Bois writes, the world wept. Because within the exploiting group of New World masters, greed and jealousy became so fierce that they fought for trade and markets and materials and slaves all over the world until at last in 1914, the world flamed in war. The fantastic structure fell, leaving grotesque profits and poverty, plenty and starvation, empire and democracy, staring at each other across world depression and the rebuilding. Whether it comes now or a century later, he's right, it's in 1935, so whether it comes now or 2035, will and must go back to the basic principles of reconstruction in the United States during 1867 to 1876. What are those basic principles? Land, light, and leading for slaves, black, brown, yellow, and white under a dictatorship of the proletariat. That's why he puts communism in. But the point is this. 
and solution in Mississippi is going to require a fundamental restructuring of our understanding of how government works and how capital works. And that means whether it's Corporation Jackson starting from the grassroots with the farms, with the co-ops, with the businesses, whether it's the political machine in Jackson led by a mayor, Lumumba, who understands all that very well and a city council that is trying to stave off these white fascists in the state house and try whether whether then you must get federal intervention because we're all paying taxes if we're in the United States and then the federal intervention must be then busted down by people who were not coming in on the principle of a fantasy of all of us have a soul together but of breaking the back and when Joe Biden says MAGA, MAGA Republicans he looking at trying to get reelected trying to hold the house and, and in the Senate and increase perhaps in the Senate so he's now willing to say fascism and of course the fascists and we, as my mom and them say, my grandmama out of Alabama, you open up the door and throw the, the water out the back and them dogs out there thinking you're throwing out some cornbread, something for them to eat. And whatever dog gets hit by that hot water, it's going to holler. So when Biden said fascist, guess who got, who yelled? The dog that got hit with the water. Hit dogs holler. So everybody who hollered about, you ain't calling us fascist, you're a fascist. Anyway, the point is that all of that has to work in, in tandem, but it has to come from a governance mentality. We are for we. We for you too, if you got some sense, but we not for you based on just some old feeling or we got a soul. And our labor is the thing that has kept this enterprise going. That's why organized labor, whether it be Bessemer, Alabama, or New York City, Amazon scared as hell. That's why they're closing Starbucks. We can't let these little uh, 10 uh, employee shops run. Nah, why? Because labor knows they exploit. Meanwhile, we have to think about that in the context of those who are shaping policy at levels that can have more immediate effect. Because right now, all this sounds real good. You in Jackson somewhere, and you I ain't got no water. I got some electricity, so we I'm sitting in class, and I'm glad to be here. And as you say, I'm going. I'm standing in line getting water now. But how does it help me right now? As Sonia Sanchez, whose birthday is next week, she'll be 87. Sonia Sanchez, before we see each other again next Saturday, inshallah, as the Muslims would say. You know, as she say, how do it free us? Right? How do it free us? Well, we have to intervene at those policy-making le uh, levels. There is no sheltered rear. You don't concede any room. It's not either or, it's both and. I would rather have Chuck Willamumba as the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi than some fascist who they want to send from Tate Reeves' clan adjacent crew. But they can't have no white mayor in Jackson. So I would rather have Mayor Lumumba than some rented Negro because that's how you have to do it now. You think Herschel Walker, who they snatched out of whatever self-talking to itself stupor he was in to prop up and put on a suit and talk about air, bad air and good air and we got enough trees and all. You think they went and got him because they had a choice? No. It's too many non-white people in Georgia and Stacey Abrams and them. You can argue, we can argue about whether all her policies, no, of course not all, any politicians' policies. They're not leaders. They're bureaucrats. But the point is that you got to prop up somebody look like them. Hell, we've seen that. Alan Keyes, we said, oh, come on now. We, we, we start talking. We all know that anyway. But my point is this. We have to be in all the rooms. Joe Biden, before he gave his speech last week, about a month ago, he had a meeting in the White House. That's when he had COVID, remember? He two floors up at the White House, piped into the meeting that's downstairs on the screen. Who's in there? Michael Beckloss, the historian. Uh, Alita Clark, Sean Wilentz, 
uh, Ann Applebaum, who wrote the book uh, Twilight of Democracy. She in the room. Um, what's the boy name down at uh, Vanderbilt? John Meacham, who y'all see all the time talking to that clan adjacent Morning Joe. Can't watch that. Anyway, what are they talking about? The conversation they had that uh, about a month ago, I think it was the 3rd or 4th of August, was the crisis and perhaps the end of democracy in the United States. So, so when you heard him talk in Philly the other night, talking about the end of democracy, we got to save democracy, got to save democracy. Hey, I am for democracy, even though I got quibbles with the concept of the demos and the Greek, and I'm going to see lead that aside. We talk about that in this intro class, and we talk about the social structure weeks. We cover social structure and talk about the demos and what that means. But it was an all-white group of historians talking about Look, this thing on the verge of political collapse. We've been here before. So you have to put your foot on the gas to do that. Well, guess what? That means you have to get these people in Jackson some water and Flint too and everywhere else. And global warming is real. You got Joe Manchin to sign on for pennies on the dollar what you wanted to do. And part of the reason he did is because uh, McConnell and them pissed him off because, you know, his money going to be long all over because he, he propping up coal every time he can. But Manchin got mad. And then you went and got the Tooney Loon in line, the Arizona Senator, Cinema, who is propped up by all the billionaires, to quote from Gil Scott Heron. And you got a, a package over the line that put dozens of millions of dollars, including money that went to Mississippi that was targeted for Jackson, but it got to go through the state house first. And Tate Reeves and his Klansmen is sitting up there like, you ain't getting this money. And Mayor Lamuma trying to tell y'all that some of these pipes could have been fixed. It's going to take $2 billion to fix the whole thing, which means at this point, you got to overrun it. Biden is getting a little closer to that confrontation. He ain't Lincoln. He ain't FDR, although Lincoln and FDR was this topic of the first meeting he had. That meeting was in March 2021 when he brought these historians and thought leaders to the White House. There was all white people a month ago. And you heard some of that in this speech he gave last week in Philly. In March, they were he was in, you know, he's riding high. January 6th tore up the place, but he's like, I might be able to get a whole lot of stuff through. He's going to put the big money bills through. He's going to push through. the progressive caucus. Like, yeah, we might be able to do this. This is for Joe Manchin was like, dude, I run America. But the point is this, at least the federal part. But he's there. And who did he invite to the White House? Some of them same people I just talked about. Meacham was there because Meacham be writing speeches for Biden, too. Beckloss was there, the presidential historian. Uh, but who else was there? Michael Eric Dyson and Eddie Cloud were in that room. We should ask them. What was y'all and that Gordon Reed was in that room. That's three blacks. I'm sure they gave some stuff. Walter Isaacson was in the room. But I'm saying that's a very different conversation than the one he had last week. I'm sure because at least them three would have said something. And they were like, look, put your foot on the gas. Reminds me when Fred Douglas went to see Lincoln. And then Martin Delaney went in there like, look, man, give us some guns. We'll end this. I'm going to kill some Confederates. It's all love, though. Out of love. Labor of love. Mm. And so, you know. Lincoln made Delaney a major, as we know. Shout out to Larry Crow, uh, to Sister Ola Bisi. And I thought I saw in the pictures that Larry shared uh, at the Delaney conference last weekend in Pittsburgh. I thought I saw uh, his daughter, Shani Crow, and Mariah Garima, Holly Garima's son. Uh, congratulations to them. They're engaged. They'll be married soon. It's a beautiful thing. Black people, you know, black love. I love that kind of thing. And them two right there, them some world-changing Negroes. They come from two very, very beautiful families and communities. D.C. meets Chicago. It's a beautiful thing. Africans, though, Africans. So, but in that process of uh, talking with Biden, he got a team, a brain trust. Help me. Well, where's our brain trust? It's here and a lot of other places, but it's certainly here too. Here in Nubia, here in Narrative. 
with people who are bringing their bricks, meaning their intellect, their talents, their skills, their desire, their capacity to labor for each other, labors of love. And that becomes a way to enable the type of problem solving we will have to have in every room that is taking place. This ain't the, the Biden advisory room. This is the African people governance room. So elected officials can come in here. They need to understand how this policy works. There are people, we got enough technical expertise to solve every problem Jackson had. The question is, do we have the money? And no, this isn't a matter of us passing the hat and raising the money, although we need to send support to Jackson as we are fighting for the money we already paid in taxes. And then we, yes, we're going to organize and yes, we're going to do everything we can in terms of self-determination. And then this gerrymandering has to be addressed. Right, because they got, these Africans in a stranglehold in Mississippi. Tate Reeves, your dollar store, uh, dollar general store mop, toupee wearing, clan adjacent fascist. And all your little hillbilly friends who love the blues but hate black people. Love the blues but hate the people who sing it. You know, in the mold of Lee Atwater. And so when we think about that, we have to ask, who is we? Our country. I pity the fool. It ain't no our country. It's fighting for what's right in coalition with whoever else wants to fight for what's right, which means organization like Operation Jack, Cooperation Jackson. Settler state communities and settler state countries have no soul. But, and I'll, I'll kind of wind this up for now by turning to some other things that have September as a mark. You know, September is when the United Nations usually meets. And as we talked about the other day, the Afro-Asian countries, there was the Bandung, the non-aligned movement countries will be meeting, of course. But they had a meeting last week. In fact, today, the 3rd of September is the day it ends. They had a meeting in Barbados. Oh, Professor Hunter, our friend, Mia Moore, Motley been at it again. I watched her opening speech and then the ambassador from Senegal speech at the opening of a summit they had, a trade summit between the Caribbean Economic Community and the continent of Africa, the Import-Export Bank. Barbados had a meeting, they hosted the meeting of the Import-Export Bank of Africa. It's called the African-Caribbean Trade and Investment Forum. And when I tell you that Prime Minister uh, Motley got up and made all these connections between Barbados and Nigeria, I mean, down to Jaja Popo. I laughed about it because Aya Nelly saw it and she was like, because she knows that's, that's where the library is in the Popo town, the one she started. And of course, she read about Jaja, knows Jaja, the history of Jaja. Jaja of Popo, of course, was kidnapped. He was enslaved a couple of times and was a ruler a couple of times. They ended up taking him in exile away from Nigeria, what is now Nigeria. And there's a statue, statues of him in both places, right? Jaja. She's talking about Jaja. She's talking about the names of places in Barbados, names of places in Nigeria. She said, in other words, we are together. We must be one. And out of that one, we must do business together. We must deal with trade forever. Those of us who are watching right now from the Caribbean or you're the continent of Africa, you know that you can't take a plane anywhere in the Caribbean and land in Africa in a direct flight. She said, nah. She said, if our own honorable Rihanna can pack out crowds in these places in Africa or here, if uh, she named Burner Boy, of course, kind of laughing. Y'all saw him in Black is King, right? Can come here to Barbados and pack out 20,000 people in the stadium. She says, surely then there is an interest in us capitalizing on being together. Cultural meaning making, that's what I would call it. And so people are saying, yeah, I should be able to get on a plane in Kingston or Port-au-Prince. I should be able to get on a plane in Georgetown, Guyana. I should be able to get on a plane and get off in Lagos, get off in Accra, get off in uh 
in Angola and Luanda. Get off wherever I want to go in Africa. And guess what? Cut out that European middle crook labor on Labor Day weekend. And they talked about these ties. Now here was the uh, what was the uh, the theme? Joe Biden while he's talking about uh, um, the soul of America. And in Philly, because his man's was up there a few years ago in 2008, talking about uh, a more perfect union. The theme of the African Caribbean meeting they had and is ending today in Barbados was one people, one destiny. One people, one destiny, uniting and reimagining our futures. And what the American Negro going to do? Sit up here and argue with these red, white, and blue people about let me in. I'm not saying that there aren't important battles to be fought. We're going to end with that in a second. Because there are. But you got to fight in every room you're in. And why would you turn away from the Africans everywhere else? Particularly when so many of us in this country got direct bloodline ancestors in other places. Either because you came here because the dollar was more powerful here. And because they love we love, they love our freedom. Now they love your George Washington dollar. And they're going to send it back where it's where until that dollar down there or that money down there is worth more than the money here. You see, the euro is collapsing. Except the state countries have no soul, but people with common purpose may be able to create soul in places where there is one people, one nation and reimagine their futures. Can that happen in America? Joe Biden says it's a land of possibility. I'm saying I agree with you, Joe. It could happen. Will it happen? I know too much history, Joe. And what I'm not going to do. Is fall in love with you and expect you to be true. I pity the fool. Look at the people. I know they wondering what you're doing. You're just standing there watching me make a fool of you. So the whole point is that while we think about the question of individual success, like a Serena Williams, and think of it as a proxy for our victories, and it gives us great psychic comfort, and I was kind of thinking, we have to remember that individuals whose individual labor are labors of love, for the group often suffer. So I'm going to end today with somebody whose birthday it is. 127 years ago today, right here in Washington, D.C., Charles Hampton Houston was born. He made transition at age 54 at Howard University. Well, what is was Howard University Hospital, Freedman's Hospital in 1950. Same month we lost Carter G. Woodson. Or he, they became ancestors. Heart, his heart. Man, Charlie Houston, bro. Here, this is uh, Genere McNeil's book um, on Charles Houston's considered kind of like the the, the the landmark text. This is by a brother who is a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. It just came out a few months ago. It's called Genius for Justice. Jose Felipe Anderson. I encourage you to get this. Charles Hamilton Houston and the Reform of American Law. Genius for Justice. One of the good things about this book is that the foreword was written by Charles Hamilton Houston Jr. Tie a few of these strands together. Remember what I said about Du Bois writing Black Reconstruction in America and publishing it in 1935. That's between World War I and World War II. That is the same year that the Italians is bombing the Ethiopians and putting the mustard gas on them. Million man army! Took one Ethiopian soldier to conquer Rome. Well, Charles Houston was one man born and raised in D.C. Uh, we talked about him many times. Y'all can go look at the conversation we had about him and you should know uh, I'm a Charles Hamilton Houston fan. I don't know what he would have made of me, maybe nothing. And that's irrelevant. Doesn't matter. 
Houston, went to Dunbar High School, Amherst College, Harvard Law School, got two degrees from Harvard, a law degree, and then went on to get an advanced degree in legal studies. Remember, we talked about him in James Spady's book on um, Marcus Garvey. He introduced, in fact, uh, Garvey when Garvey came up there to speak. Houston's a complicated figure, man. Charlie Houston, according to the family stories, and uh, Charles Hamilton Houston Jr., uh, seen here. In 1949, in the final Christmas he spent with his father, this is just before they died, it's Charlie Houston right there, who recently made transition not too long ago. Uh, Houston's granddaughter just graduated from Howard Law School, good sister, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, this is what he says about his father. He says, let me see, I'm going to go to the war piece. Teaching at Howard in 1917, because, oh, by the way, Charles Houston wanted to be, a, according to his mom, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston's junior's mom, Charles Hamilton Houston's wife, senior. According to her, he wanted to be a concert pianist. But his father, William L. Houston, a successful and pragmatic practicing attorney, saw no future in it. Imagine that. What would you do with your labor if you had to fight oppression? Therefore, with his Amherst degree in English literature in hand, my father became a lecturer in the Department of English at Howard University, where he also developed a course in African-American literature. Another thing I, you know, I saw in Time magazine had an article on the AP class, the um, AP African-American Studies class. I, of course, was one of hundreds of people, hundreds of scholars who worked on that course. And when I saw the quote in the AP, the lead quote in the Time magazine article was from Henry Louis Gates, I just laughed. I said, yeah, of course. I'm proud and happy to have worked on that curriculum to have worked alongside women and men particularly school teachers who are working on that curriculum who will be teaching that class who are teaching that class right now shout out to y'all i'm also very clear that that is intellectual warfare and ain't but so black it's gonna be because governance ain't gonna make it into it because you know what i was doing the whole summer we was working on my my shift of scholars were working on it you know what i was saying and i'm saying i'm saying it because i'm it's right i'm not saying it because i expect you to do it because i already know where this will go and when i seen gates's name i'm like yeah there you go brother i ain't mad at you i ain't mad at you henry because you know i pity the fool that falls in love with you i'm sure we sh you could have had it when them people saw the police arrest you on the porch of your own house because somebody in the neighborhood called and said i don't know who this negro is trying to get in his own house out here in this harvard you know harvard university suburb territory and he arrested you in your own house and that picture of you with them handcuffs on looking like yeah, I mean, you know, somebody across the street could at least done you the service of playing the Black National Anthem, not lift every voice and sing, but I pity the fool that falls in love with you and expect you to be true. Look at your neighbors. I know you wonder what they're doing. They're just standing there watching you get put in the back of a police cruiser with handcuffs on look at the people anyway but you had the beer summit i think joe biden was at that summit yeah you biden and obama and the cat that arrested you is it what must be going through a black person's mind when they get jammed up into shit like that like hmm. non-alcoholic beer please because if i get drunk i might slap one of you because you already know it's the negroes that did the most to try to get included them is the ones that get the maddest at the moment they get yoked up. They said Gates was cussing and talking about people mama when they arrested him. I understand, bro. It's got to be very frustrating. Anyway, going on. Houston maybe wouldn't have been a lawyer, but then his son writes 
Teaching at Howard in 1917, when Woodrow Wilson led the United States into World War I to, quote, save the world for democracy, maybe the same democracy Joe Biden was talking about the other night. My father joined with young men at Howard and other historically black colleges to protest the government's refusal to train black military officers to lead black troops. This is a very famous moment in African history in the 20th century in the United States. The protests worked. And consequently, my father became one of the first black officers commissioned during the war with the rank of first lieutenant in the Army Infantry. Shout out to the Museum of African American History and Culture when they posed the World War I exhibit down there. And I got a chance to sit with the brother who curated it who is a, has a PhD, also retired military, and we talked, had a conversation. Y'all can look on the uh, African American History Museum website, and you can see that conversation I had with uh, Dr. Salters, um, who was the curator, the lead curator, and the team down there did a very beautiful job. And you see Charlie Houston in his officer's outfit. Also thinking about Carla Hayden again, because in the Library of Congress are the Charles Hammond Houston papers between there and Moreland Spingarn collection at Howard. Shout out to my friend Ben Talton, who runs Moreland Spingarn now at Howard University. But the Library of Congress has Charlie Houston's diary, his journal that he kept in very pristine handwriting of being in the war. His son writes, Subsequently, however, my father and several of his fellow black officers objected to the army's policy of excluding black soldiers from artillery training. Military officers considered black people to be too unintelligent to do the mathematical calculations required of artillery officers. Just like you think somehow that Serena Williams putting that ball on a quarter inch of that white line is because she uh, had the genes and came out of her mama's womb like that instead of countless hours of practice and a mind that is so far ahead of you that by the time you get to where she going, the grandbaby's grandbaby is going to be laughing at you from somewhere safe because it won't be in the United States by that time. Going on, Charlie Houston says, Charles Houston Jr., says, my father and several of his fellow protesters resigned their infantry commissions and applied for artillery training. Again, the protest paid off. He was accepted in artillery school, completing the training and was recommissioned a second lieutenant of artillery. All right, let me, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about Houston because I love, I could talk about Charlie Houston forever, but he goes to France. Before he goes, he has a life-altering experience. He was ordered to serve as judge advocate in the prosecution of a black career army sergeant who was charged with a minor infraction of military regulations. Investigating the charges, Houston found out the stuff wasn't uh, correct. He went to his superior and recommended these charges be dismissed. Houston writes, for his initiative, my father was severely reprimanded. He was told that his job was not to investigate the facts, but to secure a conviction. It was at this moment, my mother later told me, that my father decided to study the law so that he could fight for men who could not strike back for themselves. Charlie Houston went to war. As the story goes, not only from Jennifer McNeil and her book, Groundwork, because Charlie Houston ended up being the dean at Howard Law School. According to Margaret Eds in her book, We Face the Dawn, who I interviewed last week because I wanted to talk about Spotswood Robinson and, and Oliver Hill, two of Charlie Houston's students, he called himself the vice dean at Howard Law School because either his pay or, according to Ed's, probably more, uh, probably the faculty pay was so low that he would not call himself the dean. He's I'm the vice dean. It doesn't matter because this is a labor of love. And he trained the lawyers to kill Jim Crow, Oliver Hill, Spotswood Robinson. Holly Murray came through that law school. By that time, uh, Spotswood Robinson was back on the faculty. Charles Hamilton Houston came back from that war and said, I'm going to kill Jim Crow. I'm not going to live in a society that expects me to be true. And I, I don't expect it to be true. It's got to change. This is the whole philosophy of the 14th Amendment. If you read um, 
Richard Kruger's book, um, Simple Justice, the whole arguments they had, because he then trained and then he went to work for the NBCP and the rest is history. He talked about Charlie Houston, I won't get too deep into it, but I want to end with this. I saw in the paper this week that Glenn Youngkin, the Klan adjacent governor of Virginia, who would not be the governor of Virginia, had it not been for the kneecapping that Ralph Northern made sure happen once they found him with blackface because then the lieutenant governor would become governor and that brother's name was Justin Fairfax. Fairfax uh, was then hit with allegations that he had sexually assaulted a sister in Boston, another sister when he was an undergrad at Duke and Duke still ain't learned his lesson as you can see because when Brigham Young came out there talking smack, the Duke players didn't walk off. The Duke coach didn't do nothing. And everybody looking at Brigham Young for what happened to that young sister down there on the volleyball team last week. But I saw, Professor Hunter, you probably saw this too, uh, yesterday. Actually, it was today's paper or yesterday's paper? Dawn Staley, the coach, Philly bred, the coach at University of South Carolina, canceled the two-game home-and-home with Brigham Young coming up in the fall. I said, see, that's how you do it. Uh, Blue Devils. Blue Devils. You understand. Or maybe you don't. Anyway, Justin Fairfax is accused of sexual assault. When he was an undergrad at Duke, also what happened in Boston, the minute the assault came out, his numbers tank. He's not going to resign. All the hillbillies come out the woodwork. Them same hillbillies whose cousins run the Mississippi legislature saying, you got to resign. It's the morals. And the, the, the people screaming the morals the loudest are usually the ones who ain't got no morals at all because they love talking about morals in the South. Or they love it. Southern culture. I'm a Southern gentleman. You damn clan adjacent racist if you ain't in the clan yourself. And so but the people calling for him to resign, Fairfax was like, hey, yo, investigate me, please. There are black women DAs in Durham and one in Boston. Open up, please. I am willing to do, please get the test. Prosecute me. If there's anything to prosecute, please do. Did I have sex? Yeah, I did. Now, did was it consensual? Yes, and somebody was in the room down here. I mean, he done, he put everything. You talk about white hot glare. He put everything there, but that wasn't the point. Still to this day, no investigations. Journalists, like one wrote for the Washington Post, said, I made a mistake. Well, yeah, you made a mistake. And guess what? We end up with Glenn Youngkin. Because Terry McAuliffe's slick Clinton adjacent ass couldn't beat Youngkin. Justin would have been, Fairfax would have been the governor already and then running for a full term. But no, I put that on Ralph Norvin and, according to reports, the mayor of uh, Richmond, Stoney, who is black. Again, you can find somebody to do the bidding. But my point is this. Youngkin, who is now the governor of Virginia, this white nationalist, open white nationalist, ran on a white nationalist platform. He signed a law this week loosening the criteria to teach in Virginia. So we're facing a teacher shortage. So basically, uh, uh, teachers who are retired, y'all can come back in the classroom. You can get emergency certifications. He's going to turn it over to the state. Why? Because if you get local with it, you have a problem, just like you don't get this stuff to people in Mississippi and Jackson to run their affairs. You zoom out to the state, Yunkin, tearing up the education system. And on Charlie Houston's birthday, on Charlie Houston's 127th birthday, thinking about how one individual laboring out of love can make a difference by recruiting others and helping them in that process and how we got here to the moment and what the reaction will be when you're talking about true governance-centered humanity. How the response will be, we'll end with this on Charlie Houston's birthday. Two of those lawyers that he trained, Spotswell Robinson and Oliver Hill, were Virginians. And I encourage you all, I've showed you this book before, to get this book, We Face the Dawn. There they are right there, Spotswell Robinson and Oliver Hill.
because, and I won't get into this, we've talked about this other places, long story short, one of the cases, the Virginia case that ends up being the case that gets folded in with the other four places, the lead name, of course, taking Brown versus Board of Education, they argue those cases. Spotswood Robinson almost killed herself, in fact, as the story goes. Uh, Spotswood Robinson's daughter repeated this story uh, to Margaret Eds. Um, Robinson was given the task of editing Brown versus Board, the brief, and he worked so hard, he worked himself to pure exhaustion. And I think it was the Crisis Magazine put out a national call to send money to put spots, send Spotswood Robinson on vacation, which he wouldn't take. He was that level. And he, I've talked about him before, right? He was the chief judge on D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the court that Ruth Bader Ginsburg came off of. Antonin Scalia came off of. Harry Edwards was on that court. Uh, Robert Bork. But we'll talk less about him. The chief judge was Robinson. Robinson had been black. He'd been on Supreme Court. And Margaret Ed said if uh, if Oliver Hill had been, I mean, if Spotsman Robinson had been white, he'd been on Supreme Court. And she said if Oliver Hill had been white, he probably would have been a United States Congressman, maybe a senator. But again, race traps them. But what happened after Brown? You know what they did in Virginia? They call it massive resistance. They had another place like Arkansas. They closed the schools for a year. And in Prince Edward County, where young um, uh, Johns, uh, what's, the, what's that child's name? Her, her uncle was the minister at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Barbara, Barbara Johns. Her uncle was Vernon Johns, who was the pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, but he was so radical. They got rid of him, them bourgeois Negroes in Montgomery. And they said, let's get a young cat that we can kind of rock with and help shape. And that ended up being Martin Luther King. Be careful, because when they're laboring for love, they're going to take you where you need to go anyway. Well, Vernon Johns' niece, Barbara, led the walkout at Robert Russo Moton High School. And that walkout at Robert Russo Moton High School, 16 years old, she's from Farmville, Virginia. Moton High School, over the conditions there. they She called Robinson and Hill, and they take the case about equalization of resources. They have been fighting for equalization of black teacher pay. And when they win that case, what did them white boys do? They closed their schools. This is Bob Smith's transcript, basically, of many interviews with people, these young people, and the communities there, Farmville and beyond. They closed the school in Virginia, in, in, in Prince Edward. There are students who lost not only the years up to 1964 of schooling, some of them lost up to 10 years in schooling. 10 years in schooling, rather than these white boys open those schools. They, they, they finally came back in 1964. I was born in 65, we were born in 65. That means this, this is history now. Now, I'll end with this. Yunkin in, in Virginia carrying on the tradition of uh, trying to cheapen education, sacrificing everybody to make his political white nationalist point in control. Thursday's New York Times had a headline, pandemic set back schools back two decades, children's reading and math skills suffer. National test results scheduled to be released on Thursday show to start in stark terms the pandemic's devastating effect on American school children with the performance of nine-year-olds in math and reading dropping to the levels from two decades ago. And you know who's at the bottom of those scores? They look like us. So on this Labor Day weekend, in a settler state that has no soul, in a place where laboring for love means not just individual success, but moving collectively, we must always remember a few things. And I'll end with this. The example of Mississippi and what's going on in Jackson 
reminds us that we must always be politically engaged and we must also bang on politicians who are not leaders at all, but bureaucrats to, to do the will of the people. And the will of the people, the model in Jackson, I think is one of the best examples of these community forums, these community circles, these citizens tribunals, these moves together where you then say, this is what we want. And then you got to put people in office who will then carry that out at the local level. And then at the local level, we have to ask ourselves what we do in addition to that, whether it be self-help, networks to support, and we certainly need to send our support to Jackson now. Even the students at Jackson State uh, have, uh, have organized themselves and they are receiving support. Y'all can go look for it and you can see where to contribute to get water down there, get water. And it isn't just about bottled water. Hell, you're going to take a bath and bottled water every damn day? No, nah, hell no. And that water costs something, which means somebody profiteering off that, no doubt. There's some donations, but yeah, you still paid for the water, right? So I'm saying that is one of the lessons from Jackson. At the same time, Benny Thompson, because we know the rest of the Mississippi delegation, them two hillbilly senators and the white nationalists they've gerrymandered into the federal legislature ain't going to do nothing except do what the bidding of that clan adjacent governor and his clan adjacent legislature is doing. That means it's time for the executive branch to intervene. If you set aside money for Mississippi that's supposed to go to Jackson now, Joe, speeches in front of the Independence Hall is cute, but now that money needs to go straight to Jackson. If you need to run over Tate Reeves, just hit him. He, he, he'll fall why that, that mop gonna come off his head first thing and then you boom go right over him because guess what you went far enough to call them fascists you call them MAGA republicans it's time to make an example of him and when you finish go get that puffer fish in that stuffy suit in florida and then that cat down there in texas that shovel mouth bastard the ap course reminds us that there will always be room cut out for elites that's what du bois is writing about on labor day weekend there will be people who make profit off other people's labor if they're doing it in order to pump that profit back into the community, that's one thing. But if they're doing it so they can go off and say, be like me, I'm Negro and I made it. You can be like me. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm not really going to listen to you too hard because there's always been a few people who had space to operate. Third or four, individual successes. Again, we're thinking about Serena. We think Individual successes can give us great comfort and give us inspiration and even be instructive but they must never be confused for collective success. And we should replicate that work. We can take your lesson, Professor Hunter, and what you've done even around Sirius. You didn't, you could have easily gone on and been the only one. And as you have a conversation with our brother, Stephen A. Smith, it reminds me of something a famous filmmaker once said to Haile Garima when Garima was talking about having made Sankofa. And the reason I saw Coach ask you yesterday is because there was a couple in town from Canada whose son is considering going playing tennis for Howard. And he was he had met them over San Cofa. I'm sitting out there. We have a conversation. It was good to see there and sit there with that brother. And it's good to see these parents coming because the son, when he on the trip, they said, we're going to come down and see. Why? Because when you go to a HBCU, whether it be me and Nick Askew or whether it be Mario Beatty and Valethea Watkins at Howard or, or whether it be uh, Coach Prime, at Jackson State, you're supposed to be sending them not just to a university, but to a family and a community that's going to help everyone make progress. In the words of my brother, Kevin Washington at Grambling State University, we must all make progress. And of course, we're jailbreaking the university anyway. We want to reduce, we talked about that last week, the centrality of a university model anyway. While we are still using those things, you can do both at the same time. But again, do not confuse individual success with collective success. Are we laboring for each other? Are we laboring for our collective work? Individual success, not that impressive. And finally, on Charles Hammond Houston's birthday, let us remember that 
we do not have to take we do not have to take conditions as they are houston in the years between world war one and world war ii which were the years that these african continental african and african caribbean communities began to fight their way out of the colonialism that had been there, out of the enslavement that had been there and the aftermath, what Carter Woodson called the sequels to slavery that had been there. That is what happens as these Europeans who as Du Bois was talking about in Black Reconstruction in America, been so greedy with each other that finally they just break out in world war in 1914 to 18. And then again in 41 to 45. And every time they go to war, all the rest of the people in the world see a little bit larger opening to get out of it. And so after 1945, that's when you see the anti-colonial movement really take off. We have to remember that we have to be together, one people. We all don't have to agree on everything. We all are not the same, but we can have a mentality. And if, if somebody gonna stand in front of Independence Hall where enslavers were in there writing a document that they, they think is so great and talk about the soul of America, a fantasy, then I damn sure can talk about one people and one destiny. I certainly can talk about one people with people I have a lot more in common with in terms of my cultural meaning making and the movement and memory than I do with people who have put keeping this criminal enterprise together over the interests of my labor and even the labor of people who look like them. So there are ways to have unified solutions between now and when we see each other, Again, next Saturday will mark the anniversary of the founding of the Congress of African People in Atlanta. That was 1974. Uh, we have just passed the anniversary of the founding of the Gary Conference for a national black political party here in the United States. By the way, uh, Mayor Lumumba and Mayor Ras Baraka, Ras and Chokwe are co-convening along with a whole lot of other people I think it's the second weekend in October in Newark at Essex County College. Uh, my friend Akil Kalfani directs the uh, the Africana Institute there. Good, the good brother. We know each other since the Philly years. Um, they're having the National Black Convention there. Y'all look it up. Very important because again, these solutions aren't just one thing or another thing. It ain't just voting. It ain't just organizing. It ain't just. It's all of it together. And. Uh, as we do that work in love, we'll end with a directive from our young brother, killed, taken too soon, 25 years old, who was born on the 7th of September. This also my mother's birthday weekend, week, by the way, next week. Um, so I'll be thinking about my mom. Tupac Shakur. Yes, Tupac Shakur, the 7th of uh, September. Keep your head up. I think we can pause from there. Oh, look, hey, this would be class. I'd be like, oh, let's talk. No, but anyway. <laughs> I was looking up um, Tupac. I thought he was born in May. Was he born in May? Yeah. Oh, don't tell me he was killed. In. Let me, uh, did you look him up? I may be wrong. I was, I was doing it. Yeah, no, he was born in June. June. In June. He died September 13th. He was killed. Uh, oh, he became an ancestor. When well, yeah. that especially keep yeah. your head up. Yeah. Lord have mercy. That'll be that'll be next week. Maybe we'll talk a little about Tupac next okay. day. I'm glad you corrected me. Thank you. No. In fact, I should be checking the chat because I know it's a lot of Tupac fans in here. Yeah, no, I was like, my he's a Gemini all day. Well, because I go by signs. So I'm like, I know that's right. 
Hey, coach, your pops made 78 yesterday. That's beautiful. Everybody's putting in the chat. Hey, y'all, if y'all not in Nubia yet, you get to see. We usually do this on officer, so wow. Yeah, directly to Jackson. We are one. Look, they play they saying we are one, Fred You know, you know, you Frankie Beverly. You started that too. Um, I just wanted to so Chuck Grassley, to your point, uh tweeted, Democrats want to transform America. I want to preserve America. Uh, and Michael Harriet said, This is the greatest tweet ever tweeted. <laughs> ever tweeted. He said in 10 words, he perfectly sums up the feelings of every Confederate segregationist Klansman and the white people who spat on black kids who wanted to go to schools. I only wish it could replace America. Then it would have been a haiku. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, oh my God, what a mind they were. A Nubian uh, was donating uh, to people being here. Um, And I just want to say thank you. This is I didn't know where we were going with that labor of love on Labor Day, and I forgot it was Labor Day. So are we going to have office hours on Monday? You know it's a labor of love. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> you know, we look, we don't take it's so funny. And so every day, you know what's funny, Professor Hunter, on days when though when I've had Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedules when I was working uh, over the last 22 years at Howard, the students would be like, like it was Veterans Day, they'd be like, School is closed, Dr. Carr. I said, Yeah, I'm still coming down. But but there's no class. I said, My daddy was a veteran. If he found out I was sitting around, I'd be so I would come to campus, I go to the student center, and it'd be more students in there. Because they just sitting around, so they would come to class. Labor Day, I said, my daddy went to work every day of his life. <laughs> I will see y'all tomorrow. <laughs> and then they would come. I mean, I, I used to love it. And then on Columbus Day, I really, I mean, man, we used to have a good time. So anyway, yeah, Labor Day. Let's labor for love. <laughs> We're going to talk more about the class, actually. Um, we haven't set the date yet, but what I've been doing is um, continuing to work on these concepts. So I think we're going to talk more on Monday night about social structure. And then people coming in and give that time over to people for conversation. I love it. I yeah. can't wait. I can't wait. I love you so much. I love you. Mm, I love you. This Saturday, you know, uh, great. Yes, we are. We are Nubians too. Let's, uh, you know, enjoy and be safe and be healthy uh, this this holiday. Uh, oh yeah, I saw some, Professor Honey, is, are you getting any information on this thing starting to break out again, COVID? You know, um, I'm in perpetual that mode. So me too. Me too. I'm like, you know, I was watching last night all the people spraying, and it was like one lady with a mask on. I was like, yeah. I, know outside. I know it's outside. I would have on a mask. Me too. I'm yeah. saying. Now I saw my man, um, Wayne, the UPS guy. He, I just happened to be out. I went out for a walk, and I saw him. <laughs> and he had his mask on. I'm like, Wayne, you got your mask on, bro? And of course, you know, these he's not a first responder, but it's first response. I mean, he and everybody spot, right? He said, every time you hear an ambulance come through this neighborhood and go on that tower over there, it's usually an elder. They sick. He said, what? He said, I got my mask on because the thing is outbreaking again. And with these old folks, it's really, and I have seen, I've heard a lot of sirens over the last call. And now I realize, listening to Wayne, what it is. So y'all be careful. <laughs> it's like, we relax when we should be more vigilant, we get comfortable like, oh, okay, we fought that good fight, it's over, whether it's COVID or civil rights. And it's, it's, yeah, no, we have to stay vigilant. And, you know, and because we're not vigilant, it won't ever go away. Damn, I just feel like 
if we had just done what we needed to do for three months, we wouldn't be here right now. But uh, Maybe. that requires uh, sacrifice and people yeah. following instructions and giving up something. Yeah. For a minute, um, well, and maybe it had to go this way because uh, capitalism has lost its mind. I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you probably talked about it on the radio, uh, right there by um, the Moynihan train station. You know, how they built Hudson Yards and the vacancy rates are cratering, they doubling down on it. Hochul wants to spend all these billions of dollars to build a whole new Hudson Yards over there by the red. And they're like, I don't think we're ever going back to full office vacancy like it was before. I'm like, what's going through their mind? Why would they do that? Uh, because they're going to force people to come back and that's going to backfire in a way that they're not, yeah, they, I, let me tell you, people being forced to come back and, you know, there's incentives and then after this, the carrot will be the stick and this is when they're going to find out because uh, all of this silent, what do you call it, silent For the quiet quitting the quiet, you know, yeah, like it's new, it's new out here and the, the young people coming up, you know, there are options and people are willing to not you know, be as employed or make as much money to have a quality of life. If anything, this pandemic has taught you that life is important. Family and doing, you know, having having your home be your, you know, your centerpiece and, and not ripping and running for somebody that doesn't care about you. This, this, yeah, this, y'all force people at your, at your peril, corporations. Force people to come back and you're going to F around and find out. We just did two hours and you just gave the whole word. That's the message on Labor Day. It showed us what you love and what you value. You're right. They don't, they don't F around and find out. They will. Uh, your race just sent me a text. Yes, we will be Nubia and refilling uh, tomorrow. We're going to kick off our first uh, gathering where we're going to be watching. watching. Uh, I don't know. What did he select? Well, you have to just, y'all, get your notifications together. Yeah. Okay. You, you, no, no question. Sound like big pokey. Yeah. Again, you can conceive of something, but it requires other people to also buy in, but more importantly, have ownership. Hmm. Ray is doing something with this Nubian refill. I'm like, he just sent me the, uh, the prototype of what he's working on. I'm like, this guy. No, it, Prius has got it. Come on. Like, yeah. I'm like, and now can we do this with the children? Because I ain't trying to mess with nobody's kids. We got to put distance because people getting hemmed up. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so that newbie and refill tomorrow night, uh, it's a surprise. So I'm not going to give it away. Y'all want to watch your notifications, turn them on. You want to be involved in this. It's special. Seriously. I told Holly about it. I mean, like, look, man, Roy has debuted that film on Garvey all over the world film festivals but what happened here he he still I mean like you say I'm gonna say less <laughs> I'm gonna say less I, I, oh yes love yes. you yes love you too